Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the May 16th, 2023 uh, Zoom meeting of the Milton Conservation Commission. Commission members are appointed by the Select Board to implement the rules and regulations of the State Wetlands Protection Act and the Milton Town Bylaws governing uh, the wetlands. As a matter of formality, we've got two points. One is that we invite everyone to speak, to ask questions, make comments, but we do ask that you introduce yourselves so that uh, the record is clear as to who you are. And secondly, we introduce ourselves. My name is John Kiernan. Let me just read across the top. Steve? Uh, Steve Ivers, conservation agent. Hans, you're on mute. Hans Finlingen, uh, commission member. Todd? Uh, Todd Hamilton, commission member. Arthur? Arthur Doyle, member. Tom? Tom Palmer, member. Ingrid? Ingrid Beatty, member. All right, I think we're ready to go. Oh, John, I'm here too. This is Wendy. Oh, there you are. Oh, good. Perfect. We got everyone. Uh, thank you very much, Wendy. Hi, good evening. I'm Wendy Garpo. I'm a commissioner as well. Thank you very much. Um, all right, we're ready to go. First on the, oh, I should begin by telling members of the public that we are going to continue some of the items on the agenda. And if you have the agenda in front of you, um, eight, Nine and 10 will be continued. Eight is a request for determination of applicability, Brush Hill Lane and Zero Milton Avenue, which is actually in Boston. <clears throat> That's number nine is request for determination of applicability at 20, I'm sorry, 1259 Brush Hill Road, Lot C. And item 10, which is an amendment of an order of conditions at 1259 Brush Hill Road, Lot D. <clears throat> All of those have been continued at the request of the applicant to the June meeting. And Steve, can you tell me the date for June? I believe it's the 13th, but let me just check it. Yes, that's correct. June, June 13th. June 13th. All right, with that folks, we'll go back to number one, which is notice of intent, 25 Guile Road. At our last meeting in April, uh, we actually heard the presentation by the applicant, the town of Milton. Um, and I think we had just started uh, with the uh, neighborhood group that uh, wanted to be heard. And I think now is your opportunity, which is actually number two on the uh, agenda, which is Guile Road, Grass for Guile. So we're gonna combine one and two and invite uh, those in opposition to the project to speak and anybody that's in favor of, a, of the uh, project as well to speak. Is there a spokesperson? Paul, are, are you? can you lead off, Paul? You're on mute right now. There we go. Perfect. Was trying to be polite, John. <laughs> <laughs> You're always polite. <laughs> All right. Well, and again, once again, we thank you for allowing us to address the commission with our concerns about the artificial turf uh, project proposed for Low, Lower Guile Road. And likewise, we are, oh, hold on. I can't. No, because it, uh, hang on, John. My screen You're just okay. went funny. Take your time. All right, my screen just went funny. Okay, here we go. Technology, if we had any more of it, we wouldn't be able to do anything at all. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, likewise, we are grateful for Chairman Kiernan's invitation to offer our initial response to the April 11th presentation by Chris Hunters. And so we want to list here a sampling of our rebuttals and clarifications about specific assertions on, on impervious surfaces, stormwater storage, uh, organic infill, the migration of infill and microplastics, the turf project on Martha's Vineyard, the lifespan of fields and player safety, 
recycling of turf and heat heat generated by turf those will all those will all be small i guarantee i hope they will i guarantee you they will not be as long as the list this is not intended to be an exhaustive summation and some of our speakers will offer additional views two will examine the environment and chemistry of turf components an advocate will talk about conservation of cold water environments and we'll we'll ask other specialists to speak on other risk factors in the coming weeks and finally at the end um, members of our group will offer two concrete proposals we believe will ensure the commissioners have enough information to make a fully informed decision on the highly technical and complex risks posed by an artificial turf project in this environmentally sensitive setting, particularly given the quickly shifting regulatory climate on PFAS and stormwater runoff. Okay. Hey, so Paul, Paul, could I interrupt you for a second? Because sure. you just mentioned uh, changing standards. I understand that DEP has out for public comment some changes in the uh, reporting uh, standards. Do That's you right. know anything about that? Um, I know that they're hoping to, th that the plan was to have those numbers. These are the numbers that uh, stormwater forecast numbers that, that are gonna be included in the stormwater handbook. And my understanding is that they were hoping to have them out by the end of the Baker administration. They got held up. They're, they're still, I talked, I spoke to somebody last week who said that they're, they're expecting to have those numbers out and ready for people to use um, by the end of summer. Got it, thanks, for, uh, sorry for interrupting, go ahead. No, 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 that's fine, that's fine, John. Um, let's look at the issue of impervious surfaces. Uh, Mr. Hunter said that there would be an overall decrease in impervious surface owing largely to the fact that Guile Road would be narrowed. We dispute this as the plan calls for an installation of 1.3 acres of artificial turf, which the EPA considers an impervious surface in its definition for MS4 permitting along with those it envisioned for its new expanded rule for Clean Water, Clean Water Act stormwater discharges in the Charles Mystic and Deposit River watersheds. The EPA says the new, new permits will be available by the end of summer 2024, and clearly it will apply to projects like this one, in part because it fits, um, it is, it, it, this project is over an acre and includes uh, uh, an impervious surface according to them. Here's the general permit oh, language. Oh. Well, yeah, can I can I interrupt you again on that sure. one? Does does the uh, the designation of it being impervious follow the, just said the name artificial turf, or does it depend upon the specifications for the product? Yeah, as far as I can tell, John, it does not. And um, I can read you the language, but I think part of the reason why is that that they're looking at surfaces that impede water getting to into the earth. And I think the thing is that the part of the confusion can be I think that people have this idea that that water when water falls into the turf it all immediately goes through and it's completely um, it's it's it it is completely open to uh, to this and in point of fact um, turf is really sort of more like a drip system a better way to think about it would be to think about a, a window screen held under held uh, horizontally under a faucet so when you turn the faucet um, at a certain speed, a certain volume, all the water will go through. But when when the volume picks up, when the speed picks up, of course that doesn't happen and it starts to flow off. So I think that the EPA uh, is identifying it as an impervious surface for that reason. I'm guessing that, but I can read you the language if you'd like. And sure. in fact, at some point, at some point, I'm going to send you uh, my notes here, and um, uh, I have annotations and, and citations for all of it. Um, and here's the general permit language. An impervious surface is defined as any surface that prevents 
or significantly impedes the infiltration of water into the underlying soil. This can include, but is not limited to, roads, driveways, parking areas, and other areas created using non-porous material. Also, buildings, rooftops, structures, artificial turf, and compacted gravel or soil. In fact, I think that, that the, town, the town is now charging people some sort of surcharge for impervious surfaces. And I think that a lot of that, although I don't think the town mentions artificial turf, I think that, that a lot of it sort of is modeled on this. Um, but this issue begs two questions. Will the designer, builder, or manufacturer warranty or otherwise indemnify the town in case of any damage done to the field due to flood or other extreme weather events? Will the designer, builder, or manufacturer warranty or otherwise indemnify the town or abutters in case of damage to the wetlands, brook, properties, or property values due either to a failure of the field runoff system or leaching or migration of dangerous or toxic substances? As far as I know, John, and I'm sure Chris can answer this better than I can, my understanding is that at the very least, we that uh, manufacturers don't warranty um, these fields in terms of flood at the very least. And I don't believe that they do it uh, for uh, extreme weather events either. But I'm sure Mr. Hunters knows better than I do. And now I want to move on to a quick question. I'm trying to do this as briskly as possible. On stormwater storage, um, Sean McCanty, who is the River Restoration Director of Neposit River Watershed Association, is, and is a PhD, had this question. The design of the field is supposed to incorporate significant stormwater storage. And he says it's very arguable if this counts as infiltration. From the design, it looks like the drain access to the brook or the collection pipes are below the gravel stores level. So McCanty says he's curious if, A, there exists documentation from other installations showing that in a given rain event, the system will in fact store two-thirds acre feet of water and does not just flow into the stormwater system. Or B, if they have any real world documentation about historically how much does drain from a system and how fast and he he uh, he he notes, which I think they should have installed several installed several of these at this point. Now I'd like to take the matter of organic infill. Mr. Hunter says the field will be covered by organic infill products. Now the use of organic suggests the product bears a governmental imprimatur, but the only regulatory agency that makes the organic certification is the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and it doesn't regulate infill. Further, while the word organic sounds like it's non-toxic, it is not necessarily so. A 2021 study conducted for the Martha's Vineyard Commission found in Brockville that proposed processed wood infill proposed for the project contains barium, cadmium, selenium, zinc, phenol, 2-methylphenol and 3-methylphenol, and 2,4-dimethylphenol um, uh, and benzoyl alcohol at various concentrations. So let's move on to the issue of I, I, another quick question. And sure. I apologize. I, I don't mean to That's okay. That's okay, John. distract you from your train of thought, but what you just said, you know, the organic um, infill product, right. as I understand the town is suggesting that they use the Brock fill, which yes. is a wood-based product. Yes. Yes. And, and, fact, it, and it has no plastic coating. Do you agree with that? I don't know. Some of our speakers actually tonight, um, were witnesses and were um, worked in uh, on the case in Martha's Vineyard and are much more familiar with that than I am. So, in all likelihood, they have an answer to that. Yeah, I think the, I think Paul probably is uh, based on the list that you uh, recited. They're probably integral to the product rather than just simply a coating. 
uh, genre we were talking about, what what holds it together? What what is the composition itself? So I think that you know it, it probably the distinction probably doesn't matter if it's if it's there and it's part of it, then it's relevant. Whether it's on the surface or integral, interspersed in the in the composite. All right, but the that testing indicated, yeah, it does. But the the testing indicated that it was detectable but not reportable. Correct. Um, yeah, John, different, actually, different terminology, different term, I think. That's right, right. Paul. That's right. Plastic. And, these are compounds. That's right. And in fact, again, um, we have a couple of people who are um, specialists in this kind of thing, John, and, and they can address that. In fact, I think they're planning to address it. Okay. Okay. Um, let's talk about migrating infill and microplastics. And Mr. Hunter said the infill gets moved around so that it's a process of regrooming and top dressing, and that some of the plastic grass fiber blades come out initially upon installation, <coughs> and that fibers get displaced over the course of the few, first few months, but it's not anything significant that affect, that tends to affect playability. Widespread news and anecdotal accounts, along with research, shows both plastic grass blades and infill migra migrate off fields and get into soils and waters. Hundreds of pounds of both infill and mic microplastics shed off the average field each year, despite industry's claims that the microplastic grass blades do not break. In fact, research from Sweden indicates that microplastics coming off artificial turf fields may be the second largest source of microplastics in the environment. And PFAS and other toxic chemicals will migrate with the microplastics and infill and contaminate nearby soil and waters. So let's take a look at the turf project on Martha's Vineyard. Mr. Hunter's noted Martha's Vineyard Commission approved an artificial turf project at the regional high school based in part on an analysis by Tetratech and Horsley Witten, which found there are no significant risks associated with the discharge of PFAS from the synthetic turf field into the groundwater. That characterization of the judgment is true, but um, its characterization of the situation is incomplete. The Martha's Vineyard Commission signed off, but the planning board in Oak Bluffs, where the school is actually located, held hearings, commissioned its own reports, and rejected the project permit, citing health and safety concerns about groundwater and the island's water supply. The regional school committee has filed suit seeking to override the decision on a procedural basis, the Dover Amendment, and the cases in the courts. Recently, the school committee, under significant pressure from the towns, has pursued settlement talks, and I expect that those, the news of that will come out in any, any day now. Now let's take up the, uh, the issue of the lifespan and the field and safety. Mr. Hunter stated warranties on fields are either eight or 10 years, and the typical lifespan you see is anywhere from 10 to 15 years. Now he, here he's referring to just the top plastic grass layer. The underlying shock pads, which will be used in this project, typically last in two cycles or 16 to 20 years, and Mr. Hunter suggested that some might last a little longer. The replacement of the top layer for a typical football field is about a half a million dollars, and replacing both layers more than doubles that price. What Mr. Hunter fails to note is whether these fields are safe for players. A Globe story on September 24, 2022, examined the widespread national problem of old and or poorly maintained artificial turf fields and the risk for serious head injuries it poses for players. It pointed out that there's no regulatory oversight on an artificial turf field maintenance on the state or national level. The story focused on a 16-year-old field at Charlestown High School that had consistently failed GMAX tests over the past three years those tests measured the impact on an athlete during a fall. The Synthetic Turf Council, an industry group, recommends GMAX levels should remain below 165 to be safe. 
Boston City records show the vast majority of locations on the Charlestown field exceeded 165 and about half were over 200. The Globe quoted industry experts who said, quote, by comparison, shock absorption on natural grass fields is about 80 Gmax. Grass fields severely compacted from use and drought may test as high as 100 or 120, they said, end quote. In other words, a poorly maintained grass field at 150 to 120 Gmax is still much safer in terms of impact than poorly maintained artificial turf, which can be at 165 or 200 or even higher. Now, the problem also appears to be here present here in Milton. According to Milton's consolidated facilities, the plastic, plastic grass layer Brookfield is 14 years old. Bill Ritchie told us in a phone interview that the last replacement of the grass layer cost the town about $400,000, and the pad is more than two decades old. Both are due for replacement, but are awaiting funding. Ritchie also said he believes the field has not been GMAX tested in four years since the end of the warranty period. Now let's examine the recycling of turf. When, at, when asked about recycling the worn turf, Mr. Hunter suggested that a new facility in Baytown, Texas, the first in the nation, would begin processing them starting this summer. This may turn out to be true, but the process is environmentally problematic. The ExxonMobil facility would make use of a process called pyrolysis, essentially heating the material to extremely high temperatures to break it down. A recent piece in The Guardian reports that scientists at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory found that, quote, environmental impact of making recycled plastics with pyrolysis is 10 to 100 times greater than virgin plastic production, with dangerous toxins released into the air as part of the process. Also consider that the current process involves shipping the material to Southern California to be chopped up and separated before sending it to Baytown. It's been known for quite a while, John, that, that um, the component parts, that many of the component parts of turf are in fact recyclable. That's the industry claim. The problem is it's difficult to do because they're all bound together and it's difficult to separate them and it's difficult and problematic to, to process them. So that's what we're seeing here and that's why it's taken so long to have anything at all. And now on the heat of the turf itself. Mr. Hunter said that a typical synthetic turf field on a hot August day is probably going to register in the range of 100 to 100, 140 to 150 degrees and some higher depending on whether it's got crumb rubber. A lot of that heat comes out of the rubber itself, but some of it comes out of the fiber, he said. He also states that the organic infills can bring a 40-degree reduction. While using other infill other than crumb rubber can reduce the temperature of artificial turf by a few degrees, it's not a significant reduction. One recent study concluded that, quote, high surface temperatures have been attributed to the black crumb rubber infills and different alternative infills were tested, but with only small changes observed. Another study concluded that, quote, synthetic turf infill does not affect surface temperature as fibers, the fibers, the grass plastic fibers. In addition, another researcher concluded, quote, although it is common to blame the sunlight's interaction with the black crumb rubber for hot, so the hot surface, the fibers also significantly contribute to a field's temperature. Anyone who spent time working with traditional non-infill astroturf type surfaces can tell you those fields also got extremely hot and they do not contain any crumb rubber. It is obvious that there is no magic bullet available to dramatically lower the surface temperature of synthetic turf. Reductions of five or even 10 degrees offer little comfort when temperatures can still exceed 150 degrees. And now one last note. Well, can me. I interrupt you again? And I, again, sure. I don't do sure. this. No, John, it's no problem. Just to keep it relevant. Can you cool the artificial with water? 
You can, and in fact, that is often done. The problem is if the sun is still up, it heats back up quickly. Got it. Okay, thank you. Okay, sure. Um, and one last note from me tonight before we hear from uh, a couple of our specialists. Um, at the last meeting, I mentioned we considered the artificial turf project a taking of green space from the neighborhood. And that's because we not only would be losing a grass field, but also open access as a facility would be fenced and locked as are the two other nearby artificial turf fields. And that assertion seemed to surprise to some. It occurred to me that part of this was owing to the way the Parks Department and other supporters of the project characterized the project. It's the renovation of a sports field. They view Lower Guy Field as exclusively a place for sports. They don't think about it, perhaps maybe even don't want to think about it, the way the neighbors do. It's an open grassy green space, a kind of park. It's true that kids play sports there, but a lot else happens there. It's an area where kids fly kites in spring and play baseball in spring and summer. The high school javelin and discus athletes practice there and not sure if anyone's going to want those javelin kids on the artificial turf. During little league season, families set up chairs on the field. Younger sibs run around and play in view of parents, a practice that will have to end if the project goes through as the plastic grass will be fenced off. In warm weather, other folks come by with nine irons and work on their short game a little. From August to November, other kids play football. In winter, children sled, and all throughout the year, neighbors take dogs and kids for walks on the field. We use that field the same way people use Kelly Field or the way neighbors in East Milton use Andrews. And nobody thinks of Kelly as exclusively a sports field, although it is used for sports. And we were present at a meeting of the Parks Department when the leaders of the soccer program, which strongly support a plastic field on Guile, told the commissioners there shouldn't be artificial turf at Andrews because they said, we don't live there, but we know those people don't want it. They don't want fences. They walk their dogs there. None of the current parks commissioners nor any of those who plan the facilities live in our neighborhood, and they clearly view it as exclusively a sports field. And doing so certainly makes any deliberation over it less complicated. Besides, Kelly and Andrews, there are other fields in town, Mary Lane, Shields, Cunningham, and I'm sure that neighbors there feel the same way about their fields. And it is why we view this as a taking and somewhat unfair, given that there isn't any artificial turf anywhere else in town. So moving on, tonight we'll hear from three speakers and a concluding piece from Grass for Guile. The first two speakers will be sort of speaking together. Uh, Kyla Bennett holds a PhD in ecology and a law degree as director of science policy for public employees for environmental responsibility, a national environmental turf nonprofit. She was one of two scientists to discover PFAS and artificial turf in 2019. Kristen Mello is an analytical chemist and the director of WR. AFT Westfield residents advocating for themselves, an education and advocacy, advocacy group formed in response to their city's PFAS contamination. So I turn this over to Kyla and Kristen now. Thank you very much. Uh, oh. uh, very well presented, Paul. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. And thank you to the commission for allowing us to speak tonight. I am going to share my screen. Um, you all see that? Yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so very briefly, what artificial turf is basically is a petroleum-based plastic carpet. Uh, regulation size football field is about 80,000 square feet, which contains about 40,000 pounds of plastic and about 400 pounds of infill when you're talking about um, 
crumb rubber. This is a cross-section of what artificial turf looks like, just in case you're not familiar with it. The plastic- Kyla, can I, can I stop you there? Sure. When you said 400,000 pounds of infill, if it's crumb rubber, but we're not talking about crumb rubber. Right, so it's less It's less for the Brock. The, I think the Brock fill, and by the way, there is no plastic coating on that. It is an engineered wood. I think it's a Southern pine. It goes through some kind of proprietary 11-step process to make the edges smooth and to do some other things to it, but there is no plastic. It is wood, but it does it has been found to have a number of chemicals, and it weighs about 30 or 40% less than the crumb rubber. So, um, yeah, that's what it is. So here we go, artificial grass. The blades are made out of the plastic. Then you've got the infill. A lot of people don't realize this, but the infill kind of lays on top of the blades to hold them upright. Um, and then there's a backing that these artificial blades are sewn into. And then underneath that, there's usually a shock pad. So at the last meeting, there are some what I call spurious claims regarding artificial turf. And um, Paul did uh, talk about some of these, but I just want to reiterate a couple of points. First of all, recyclable does not mean it will be recycled. That plant in Baytown, Texas is not a recycling plant in the way most of us think of recycling. And I also recall that you were talking about sustainable, and Mr. Huntress said that this is a sustainable activity. It's really not. No artificial turf system is sustainable. To me, the definition of sustainable is the quality of not being harmful to the environment or depleting natural resources and thereby supporting long-term ecological balance. There is nothing uh, safe or ecologically balanced about putting down acres of plastic on top of your soil. Mr. Huntress claimed that the proposed artificial turf field, quote, will comply with mass DEP limits for PFAS. I don't even really know what this means. When will it comply with mass DEP limits? Immediately after installation, after a month, after a year? And what, what DEP limit? Is he talking about the MCL for drinking water? or the cleanup standards for groundwater and soil. I'm not really sure, but it really was not a claim that um, has much evidence behind it. Also, how does he know? Has he tested the soil, groundwater, or drinking water um, around these fields? I know we have a lot of information, particularly from Martha's Vineyard, which uh, Kristen Mello will be talking about shortly, but um, indeed these can uh, violate mass DEP, MCLs, or maximum contaminant limits once they're put in. So let's talk about those PFAS MCLs or maximum contaminant limits. Mass DEP, as you know, has MCLs for six PFAS in drinking water and has cleanup standards for groundwater and soil. Just a few weeks ago, in March of 2023, EPA proposed federal MCLs for four, for, uh, four parts per trillion for PFOA and PFOS, our two legacy eight carbon PFAS, and a hazard index for four other PFAS to take into account mixture effects. Now, four parts per trillion is much lower than Massachusetts limits, which is 20 for a combination of all six. But what EPA said is that there is virtually no safe level of PFOA and PFOS. In fact, this is a quote from the preamble of their MCL, proposed MCL, EPA has determined that PFOA and PFOS are likely to cause cancer. There is no dose 
below which either chemical is considered safe. So think about that. There is, it's like lead. There is no safe level whatsoever. And their maximum contaminant level goal is zero, just like lead. They want there to be none of this in our drinking water. How dangerous is it? In EPA's press release, they said the proposed MCLs will prevent thousands of deaths and reduce tens of thousands of serious PFAS attributable illnesses. To me, that's pretty scary language because knowing EPA, I used to work there for 10 years and right now I have whistleblowers who work at EPA. They are not the strongest in the world and the fact that they're coming out with language like this scares me. Let's also talk about regulated versus unregulated PFAS. So EPA is regulating uh, six and Massachusetts regulates six. They are not entirely the same list, but whatever EPA regulates, Massachusetts has to come into compliance with. So MassDEP is currently looking at their MCLs and they have to move their MCLs down to the level at least the level of EPAs, they can go lower, but Massachusetts is also looking at many other PFAS, ones that are unregulated currently. As you probably are aware, there are many, many, many PFAS. It's a large class of chemicals, over 12,000. It really depends on how you define them, but the regulatory landscape is changing. And as we proceed, we are going to see both the state and the federal government regulating more. A new study that was done on Cape Cod, just came out on Monday, shows that about half of extractable organofluorine, which is used as a proxy for total PFAS, are unregulated precursors to PFAS such as PFOA and PFOS. And I can get you that study if you're interested, but the researchers said that this is a huge problem because these things stay in the soil and continually produce the regulated PFAS like PFOA and PFOS, for I think they said 66 years and up. So we're talking about generations. Once you get this stuff into your soil, it will continue to produce PFAS. And part of the problem is that when we do look at artificial turf fields and figure out what type of PFAS are in there, we're not measuring all of them. We can only do a targeted analysis for a certain number. So we don't even know the full array of PFAS that are in these artificial turf fields. And this is dangerous from a liability perspective and a health perspective. Carla, can I ask a question there? You sure. said you used the word produce twice. Um, are you saying that the plastics will continue to produce PFAS or are you saying that PFAS themselves will produce? So it's two, two things. First of all, we are, I just talked to a scientist from Wayne State University who told me he has now the proof, it's going to be coming out in an article soon, that as these artificial fish, turf fields weather, as they're exposed to UV light, um, sunlight, acid rain, whatever it is that are on kids' bodies when they're playing, you know, artificial turf gets exposed to the elements. So as they age and weather, more PFAS comes off over time. And I tested some PFAS um, in Franklin, Mass, that had was uh, over a decade old, and it still had a ton of PFAS in it. So yes, as they age, more comes to the surface and leaches off. But in addition, what I meant was, once you have these precursors, to the legacy PFAS, they stay in the soil. So we don't know how many of those precursors are in the artificial turf, but they're in there. And if they get into the soil, they will continue to form 
legacy PFAS over time. So it's the precursors that will leach off the field, get into the soil, and then they will be formed. Does that make sense? It does, but it raises another question that if you were to test the soil right now, would you pick up any PFAS? Probably, um, because PFAS is in our rain. And actually, you know, that's a really interesting question that you asked, because one of the arguments that I hear all the time, and we heard this on Martha's Vineyard, I don't know if it was Mr. Huntress that said it or others, but they said, well, we already have PFAS in the soil, so we're going to remove the topsoil and we're going to put down this field which has less PFAS than the soil. It doesn't work that way because, um, first of all, we don't know how deep down the PFAS goes, number one. And number two, um, it's additive. So if you have PFAS in the soil and you add more, you're going to get more PFAS. We have to move away from PFAS. And I'd just like to point out that my town, uh, Easton, Massachusetts, last night just voted down Port in Place playground because of the PFAS issue. Um, towns are becoming more aware. Kristen and I and other, other scientists go around and do this free of charge to towns all over the country, and we give our professional opinion. And I'm about now, we're about 50% that towns are saying no. I helped the town of Sharon. They said no to artificial turf. My town just said no to a port in place playground. And it's all because of the threat of PFAS. Do we have PFAS in our water? Yep. Do we have PFAS in our soil? Yep. Does that mean we want to put more on? No, we do not. Excuse me, can you um, send us a copy of that study that you were just re referencing? Sure, of course, okay. I'd be happy okay. to. Okay, great, and thanks. Now I'm gonna turn it over to Kristen. Thank you very much, uh, Kayla, that was very, very good. Thank you, Kyla. And um, my thanks to the commission for hearing me and I apologize for any random airport announcements. I happen to be sitting in uh, DCA, Ronald Reagan National Airport. I'm in Washington, DC right now. Um, I just spent the last two days meeting with DOD and EPA and congressional officials about PFAS, because that's what I do. Um, so here we are, there's American Airlines behind me. Um, and if I disappear at 9.15, it's because if I'm not over there, they're gonna give my seat to someone else. Uh, so. You will be delayed. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the last flight out. I'd have to like sleep here. Um, so I'm Kristen, and thank you for my small diversion right there. And uh, I'm an analytical chemist by training, but I'm a PFAS advocate because uh, this fight came to me through my tap water. I was not working as a chemist, uh, being a stay-at-home auntie, helping my brother raise his two girls, one of whom was an infant, um, when the DOD and Westfield Water Department finally told us that there was PFAS in our water. Barnes Air National Guard base is above our aquifer, fire training for 50 years there polluted us, we had no idea. So the water I was drinking as a kid growing up was never clean. And um, you know we had an exposure assessment and 92% of us have more PFAS than the average American. So this fight, I didn't pick this fight, this fight picked me. Um, and it just so happens that I was trained in chemistry. And so I was one of the people in my area best equipped to help fight. So I got involved with Milton when um, a resident reached out to me and said, hey, can you talk to us about this graph, the one you see on your screen? And this graph, um, I assume, was made by Mr. Huntress or someone he was working with. And it, in theory, shows that the components of the field tested in Martha's Vineyard had non-detect, and the soil out in Milton is, had just all this PFAS, right? Um, the problem is that this graph is a little bit misleading because 
the the numbers here are given in parts per trillion. So it makes your brain think that it's like parts per trillion, like the Massachusetts water standard, except this is a soil test. So this is a solid state PFAS test. And um, those answers are given in parts per billion. And so of course it's gonna be more than the parts per trillion that you see in water. And so while, while it's accurate to give these numbers this way, by not telling you that this is not comparable to drinking water standards, your soil numbers can look really big to you. But the thing is, PFAS migrate differently in soil than they do with plastic. Soil has organic compounds. Soil is a living thing, right? There's microbes and all kinds of wonderful biological things in soil. And PFAS are attracted to these biological things, right? So the organic matter in soil ends up retaining certain PFAS longer than others. So some PFAS get retained in soil for a longer time and some move more quickly and it depends on their length and their functional group. And so by looking at this graph, that information isn't completely seen to you. Uh, so what I did, Kyla, if you'll move to the next slide. Oh, I, I made it. I made a new graph. So this is the exact same data that you just saw in the other graph, but made my way. The blue is the PFAS that was found in your soil sample. The red line is the reporting limit. And the little yellow lines or gray, sometimes they look, those are the method detection limits. Now we're gonna get a little bit geeky here, but it's not gonna hurt, I promise. Think of it like listening to vinyl. Okay, when you listen to a vinyl record, right, you hear the hisses and the pops and the full sound of vinyl, right? There's a little bit of noise, but it adds to the experience, okay? So when you sample environmental samples or when you sample in a lab, you're gonna get noise, okay? Sometimes it's background noise, sometimes it's an interference kind of noise. The method detection limit is the limit at which your equipment differentiates signal from noise. Okay, so that yellow line, the line toward the bottom, if you're, if you don't see it, like in the first graph, PFPEA and PFHPA, you don't see a little blue bar, right? The method detection limit didn't get higher, but it didn't find the PFAS. But that red line is the reporting limit. Now your reporting limit is based on statistics, right? So your question is, what is your signal? What is your noise? How much noise do you have? And you know, how does that noise affect, um, usually it's like three sigma, right? You wanna have, you wanna have your signal three times your noise to say, I, I absolutely say that this is the correct number. So anytime that blue line is above the red line, we say it's above the reporting limit and that that number is 100% accurate. When that blue line is in between the red and the yellow, that is a valid detection, but the concentration is an estimate. Let me say that again. When it's in between those lines, the detection is valid. It is 100% there. It's just that the quantification cannot be 100% relied upon, and the value is considered an estimate. You have a crinkled forehead. Do you want to ask a question? Or do you want me to keep oh. going? 
you. <laughs> oh, I didn't know it was crinkled, but I thought, sure I'll ask you a question. The reporting line, uh, and, and I've done some work with the FDA reporting on mercury, and uh, the reporting line has a, a safety factor uh, built into it, does it not? It does. It's got that extra because because of extra or is it yep. a is it an exponential? Is it like a factor of ten? Uh, it's not usually a factor of ten. Usually, usually we we usually guesstimate around three sigma. Okay. Right, and it also it also varies on what your matrix is, um, where your calibration standards are in terms of like what you were using, how far down the calibration curve you are when you're looking right because. You know, once you don't have a data point lower, you know you're estimating, right? Even though your model is valid, and you you know, if if you're off your calibration curve, you're estimating, and so that's what it is. No, I understand that. My point yeah. was only the reporting level has a safety factor built in. It uh, indeed it's significant, correct? From a statistical point of view. Yes, from a statistical point of view. So it's the 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 number you have is statistically significant. The, the number you have is valid statistically speaking, right? Meaning your signal is so far above your noise that you know your calculation is 100% accurate. As your signal gets closer to the noise, your calculation cannot be relied upon as a number. Right. I, I was going the other way, and I was just reporting that the, that the designated red line there has a built-in safety factor, then yes. it, that's actually not the point at which you would create a human risk. Um, no, that's not what it is. The The human risk can be anywhere. The reporting limit is um, a number based on what's happening in the laboratory. It's not a, there's no health number involved with your reporting limit. Right. Is there a health number for PFAS? All PFAS are bad. Like but remember that the health limit for PFOA and PFOS is zero. Yeah. So there is nothing's acceptable. Um, go ahead, Kyla. No, I was like? done. I'm sorry. I just wanted to, to to point out that it is now for PFOA and PFOS the health limit is zero. Yes. Uh, could we go to the next slide? why it won't go there we go okay so um now where it said that um there was non-detect in martha's vineyard for the pfas non-detect to the reporting limit right but that doesn't mean it wasn't detected so these are the graphs from the martha's vineyard data directly and what you can see is that the shock pad they had a problem with their analysis Right, that's 9.52 parts per billion that they had as their reporting limit. They had the the shock pad was so um, not dense that they didn't have the weight that they needed in order to do the laboratory analysis um, exactly by the book for EPA 537. And because it's a commercial lab and they're using an EPA method, they couldn't tweak the method with what they had. It wasn't an academic lab where they could say, okay, well, we'll just adjust these factors. They have to follow the protocol exactly. And when they did, they couldn't get a number for Brock. It wasn't that it wasn't there. It was that it could not be done. Uh, so the Greenfield turf did have a valid detection. The Brock fill had a valid detection. And these were no leaching. And it was just a methanol extraction, the standard methanol extraction. And we know now from the data that that's not the best way to extract PFAS. 
Next slide, Tyler. So when they did do the best method to extract PFAS, we did have hits. Uh, so they did the synthetic, the synthetic precipitation leaching procedure, SPLP, uh, and when they did, they found PFAS in the turf, in the shock pad, in the Brockville, and when they found it in the Brockville, they found that the Brockville would leach five parts per trillion, right, of H H P A. PSHPA, which is the heptane, the seven carbon PF um, perfluorocarboxylic acid. So we use SPLP as the EPA standard method to determine what hazardous wastes will leach off a material into rainwater. The SPLP standard leaching liquid is an acidic base, right? Because in New England, we have acid rain. Uh, previous studies were done and they switched it from using an acidic solution to using DI water. And of course, when you use the DI water, your numbers come down. So uh, if you were to decide anything about it, if you were to just, you know, decide to study the materials further, use the original solution they ask for, because otherwise you're not going to be finding the data you need to find. Next slide, Tyler. Okay, so in Martha's Vineyard, they also uh, performed the total oxidizable precursor assay. That's the top assay. And when Dr. Bennett earlier was talking about the precursors, those are PFAS that when they degrade in the environment, when they get biotransformed by, you know, the microbes in the soil and plants and animals, right, they start as an unregulated PFAS. And their terminal products, their terminal endpoints of biotransformation are, are regulated PFAS. So Martha's Vineyard took these components and they oxidized them chemically. And when they did, this is what they found. And that same Brock shock pad showed up with 28.7 parts per billion, because this is a solid test, of the PFBA. 20.4 in the Brockville for PFHPA. So what, what this means is that when they oxidized the materials, they produced these PFAS that we know. So the unknown precursors that we didn't see in those graphs with the little blue lines turned into things that are regulated once they were exposed. So that's going to happen when they're exposed outside and, you know, the sun shines on them and the UV light oxidizes them. Next slide, please. So, Kristen, I've got a question. So sure. I, I understand the degradation and the, and the precursors continuing to generate essentially toxic, toxic uh, uh, compounds. Um, my question, you, you mentioned twice microbes in the soil, the soil being a living, you know, dynamic entity, as it is under the best circumstances. In my reading, I found another downside of the artificial turf is that the soil essentially becomes sterilized and that their microorganisms, bacteria, fungi, all sorts of other good stuff, in addition to macro, macroorganisms such as worms and 
insects of all kinds are dead and therefore it becomes not at all a living dynamic entity. So if you could just clarify that vis-a-vis uh, -vis what, what, you, what you just said. Oh, you're absolutely right. And not only that, but it, when humans are standing on soil, when humans are out in nature and we're having these experiences, literal physical things happen to our bodies where our blood pressure reduces and, and other things happen. And when it's artificial turf, we don't get those health benefits, right? So the minute you, you're going to take off the topsoil, right? They keep saying, we're going to take away all your PFAS with your topsoil. But then what happens is that, that every good living important thing that is actually required in order to break down you know, microorganisms that die and end up on the soil and, you know, the goose and dog feces that end up on, you know, that all of the things that help break down uh, microbiota, all of that is gone. All uh, of the fungi, the mold, right. the bacteria, all of, it is, point. Right. all of it is disappeared. So in Martha's Vineyard in particular, they were constantly talking about goose poop on the field. Well, the geese aren't not going to go on the field. And that, you know, and, and none of the none of the ecosystem that was developed to help take care of that is going to be there anymore. And so it's it's actually a really big problem, especially in a place where, if I'm not mistaken, there's already some contamination there. So the ecosystem that you've got, the ecosystem that you've got is already working against what's already draining through it. Right, because there are other there are other grass, the other plastic fields here. Um, so it's it's dangerous. It's dangerous to add more. You're removing what you have left. Uh, not to mention the oxygen production. Right. So ideally, yeah. <laughs> ideally, you know, you want your green space. You want to preserve your green space. And and when you take it away, um, you're not getting any of the benefit you used to have from it. Uh, next slide, Kaya. Thank you. Uh, so this is Kyla and our friend Tracy um, out in Franklin. Uh, this came out October 9th, 2019. These are uh, the rolls of turf out in Franklin. And if you go to the next slide, this is the data that came from the samples they took. So this data is from um, a water sample. If you look in the left-hand bottom, you can see that the green dot is where the rolls of turf were laying, and the yellow dot is approximately where the surface water sample was taken. And you can see PFH excess, uh, the 6,2-FTS, that's a fluorotelomer sulfonate, right? So that is a pre, uh, PFAS precursor as well. Um, it's a PFAS by itself now, but it's a precursor. Um, you've got PFOS, you've got PFOA, and these are nanograms per liter. So this would already be above the new uh, limits that EPA was talking about. Uh, and just so you have an idea of the timeline, I was at EPA headquarters yesterday, and they told us to look for those um, draft regulations to be finalized end of summer, early fall. So the, the changes coming are coming much sooner than people thought. Next slide, Kyla. So um, one real-world example is in Woodbridge, Connecticut. Some neighbors there had the, had the forethought 
to take a water sample before the field was installed and they took a stormwater sample after the field was installed. Before is in blue and after is in red. And, you know, that's what I have to tell you about that. The PFAS 6 after the installation was above 15 parts per trillion. In Massachusetts, DEP would be watching that. DEP would be watching that like a hawk. And if we end up, if we end up with those new standards, um, that PFOA number is well above five. Do you know, um, sorry to interrupt, but do you know what the proposed new regs are? I, I assume they're out for public comment. Uh, they are. And But what numbers are they using? Uh, well, it's, it's a combination. So the regulatory threshold would be exceeded if POA is above four parts per trillion or if POS, PFOS is above four parts per trillion or there is an algebraic equation for a hazard index, which involves PFHXS, Gen X, um, what's the other one? HXA and HPA, is it, Kyla? Um, and so they have they have these numbers that if the oh PFBS right and um, they do a ratio and they have this sort of number that you hit and if the sum of the hazard index ends up above one, then it will also be above threshold. And I can send you the math on that. It's it's complicated to explain, but easy in math. So Kristen and Singer again. Uh, sorry to interrupt you. So. This is Woodbridge, Connecticut, and but the citation is Oak Bluffs, Mass. So this was submitted in the in the context of that dispute. Is that that uh, Chandra Prasad sent the data and the information um, as part of the MVC when they were asking for public comment, and it is the only public location where the data is. So that's why it's referenced there because that's a publicly available source of the data. Okay, um, you can send us a copy of these slides, right? Oh, sure. Oh, okay, that'd be great. And so, okay, so is this a real citation, the Woodbridge Town? Mm -hmm. That's okay. a, it's a, it's a media citation. Okay, okay, great, thanks. Sure, and all of these links are live links in the slides, so I can make sure that someone shares them with you. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you. You're welcome. Next slide, please. Uh, so when we were talking about impervious surface, um, this is all the citation <laughs> for that. Um, impervious does not mean impermeable, right? Impermeable means nothing can get through it ever. Impervious means water has a hard time getting through it. So all you need to do is slow it down to be impervious. And the definition in Appendix A for the MS4 permit literally says artificial turf. It, I mean, that, that little square box is copied, literally screenshot out of the MS4 Appendix A. And all those references are listed there for you too. And not for nothing, according to Penn State, an inch of rainfall on an acre of impervious surface gives you 27,000 gallons of water to deal with. 27,000 gallons for an inch. So if you've already got wetlands and a water problem, then, you know, this is going to make it worse. And so if your fields are soggy, 
going to plastic is going to give you more water to deal with. And I don't think people always think that through. So this slide is included here so that you can think that through, read these for yourself and you know make an informed choice. Next slide, please. Oh, we're at the end. So that is everything for me, unless you have um, more questions. But there, there is, um, there are many more graphs. There is a lot more information, especially about um, PVDF, which is what Dr. Green is always saying is used with the turf. Um, there is a, a review, a literature review article on PVDF that came out in April of 2021. And it explains how the scission bond gets, you know, um, this replacement ends up broken when you expose the PVDF to UV light. So unless you are installing the field on the dark side of the moon, the, that PVDF is gonna end up getting broken. And once that acidic rainwater hits it, right? And because we live in New England and that water is acidic, then it's gonna start coming off. And so the question is, you know, do you want to take that risk? You know it's already in your soil. Do you want to add more? These are cumulative. They're bioaccumulative. There's also, if I can just add, I will, when I send you that article that came out about Cape Cod, I will send you another article that just got published um, that where a researcher found that there is indeed an increased cancer risk for athletes playing on artificial turf. And we're not talking about crumb rubber. There's a lot of evidence about carcinogens with crumb rubber. This is just the artificial turf. They, the authors attribute it to the PAHs, but they didn't look at the PFAS, which I thought was interesting. And in addition, finally, Dr. Graham Peasley from Notre Dame, who's um, a world-renowned PFAS. He's a nuclear physicist, but he developed some methods to test for PFAS. He and his graduate student or his postdoc have an article coming out this summer where they looked at literally dozens of samples of artificial turf, and they found a vast array of PFAS coming off every single one. So when you have a landscape architect say, ours is PFAS-free, it's not. It, it truly isn't. It, the devil is in the details. It really depends on what tests they're doing, what their detect their method detection limits are, um, and and whether there are problems like there were in the Martha's Vineyard case. So, the bottom line is, any artificial turf that you get will have PFAS in it. Number one, it will contribute to a violation of federal or state or both standards, and it's dangerous. Um, for your athletes and for your community. And as conservation commissioners, of course, you have the authority under the Wetlands Protection Act to regulate anything that will alter the chemical properties of the wetlands or waters. And I guarantee you that these artificial turf fields will indeed um, alter the chemistry of your wetlands and waters. Bill, uh, th thank you very much. They'll um, also, if I may, they'll we've also- a, We've got time constraints. We've got a big agenda tonight. You've got had an hour. So make your point quickly, please. Absolutely. Um, because of the heat that gets generated on these fields, they'll change the temperature of your water. So if this is going into a stream or a brook, um, you need to be careful about what's living there because, uh, you know, we have a lot of cold water fisheries in Westfield. 
And so if, if anything is spawning, changing the temperature of that water just a little is going to make a big difference in your ecosystem. That was all I wanted to add. And thank you for your time and for listening. Thank you very much. Uh, Chris, uh, I'm looking for you. Somewhere. John? Yes, um, yes, sir. Yeah. Yeah, John, um, we're, we're hoping that, that we can get Mike Andresino in to talk. Is that all right? Uh, yeah, I, I'll give you five minutes, all right? You were talking all about right. equal time before. You've had more than equal time now. Oh, I'm I think get, it was I'm about 40 last time, actually. Uh, all right, I'm going to control this hearing. You understand? You've got five minutes. All right. Um, Mike, Mike Andresino is a Milton resident and member of the Board of Directors of the Conservation Group Greater Boston Trout Unlimited. Michael? Yep. Uh, thank you, Chairman Kiernan. I'll need four. Uh, so uh, I am a Milton resident, uh, parent, uh, former Little League coach, so I've spent a lot of time on those fields. Uh, but I'm uh, speaking here as well as a member of the Board of Directors of the Greater Boston Chapter of Trout Unlimited. Um, uh, Trout Unlimited advocates uh, uh, for rivers and streams and the wildlife uh, that inhabits them. Our organization is concerned in particular that runoff from this synthetic field, uh, which we heard at the um, April 11 meeting and again today uh, could be very hot, will make its way into Pine Tree Brook, uh, perhaps through the methods that um, uh, Commission Member Palmer uh, pointed out uh, during our last meeting. Um, cool water temperatures are important for the ecosystem of Pine Tree Brook. Uh, during the spring of summer, uh, spring and summer 2020, uh, our organization, uh, GBTU, and the Ponset River Watershed Association uh, placed and monitored a series of 10 temperature loggers uh, up and down the length of Pine Tree Brook from up in the Blue Hills uh, uh, down to the confluence with the Neponset River. Um, as one would expect, uh, the temperatures were consistently cooler in the upper, shadier uh, uh, parts of Pine Tree Brook. So uh, speaking uh, not as a scientist, uh, that was as close to science, that project, as, as I'll ever get, um, uh, but as, as an informed citizen and a, a member of a group that uh, has a lot of science behind it, uh, I don't want to see the lower sections of Pine Tree Brook get any warmer than they already are um, uh, because I, uh, that would be detrimental uh, to the ecosystem of that brook, uh, which is important to the town of Milton. That's all I have. Thanks, Mike. I, I've got a question for you. On the Little League sure. uh, basis, uh, I mean, your experience here, is the Little League field there, is that natural grass or is that artificial turf? Yes, well, the the uh, upper field, uh, Piatelli field, it was recently made artificial turf, but the lower field that's at the essentially the same level as, um, as the Guile field we're speaking of, that's called Donovan field, uh, that's grass. Perfect. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate it. John, can right. I ask you a quick a quick question? I know I know we're pressed for time. Yes, but Paul. It, it's it's not. Um, it seems we're hearing from some of the commissioners that they're not getting all the material that we're sending, and it, we're wondering if there's some better way to do it. We're we're wondering particularly about the uh, the comment letter from the Deposit River Watershed folks, um, and also the uh, uh, the letter a letter that was sent. Um, from um, what was her name? Elaine from Elaine, uh, from Elaine Blaze, uh, from the attorney Elaine Blaze, asking whether or not uh, you would consider um, letting us hire a hydrologist to take a look at the situation. 
we, we, we've talked to other commissioners and it, it's not clear to us that all the that stuff is getting through and how should we get it to you? What's the best way to do it? Uh, if you get it um, in hard copy to Kathy Bowen, uh, but we we definitely have a Trini Blazes uh, number, but, I, but that's actually one of my questions I was gonna ask uh, Chris Huntress. Uh, I have, when we started this, if you give me a, a moment, it's the uh, Synthetic Turf Laboratory Testing and Analysis Summary Report that was submitted to the Martha's Vineyard um, Commission in uh, February of 2021. Yeah. I'm trying to check with commissioners. Does everybody have this? And I know, Steve, you said you had it um, digitally, but I don't know who's got it. Arthur, did you did you get this? You and I talked about some of the contents of it. And I know Ingrid did not get I it. I did not get it, no. All right, so Paul, your, your, your question's right on the money. I just wanna make sure that everybody's uh, getting everything. So I, I did not get it either, John. You did not, all right. Well, I, Nor did I. Steve, if, if you've got it digitally uh, or you know, on an email form, can you send that around? I think everybody has the blaze light. And I picked up a lot today from uh, uh, DEP. I, I picked up some material uh, on both sides in the Arlington issue. Uh, and I also picked it up um, Arlington and uh, there was there's another town as well that's uh, having a, a dispute. Um, and I and I, I will scan these and send them to everybody. Like I've got Laura Green's uh, report for Arlington and I've got uh, Susan uh, Chapnick's um, uh, data as well. That's in the Arlington issue. So for the public's benefit and other commissioners, there are a number of towns that are uh, going through this, this same issue right now. I'm trying to gather as much information as possible and then disseminate it, which Paul, I think was your very, that's your point. John, I, I do have a quick question. Um, so typically the planning board will, um, and that's how the regulations are, are, are written on the stormwater to do their own review of the DEP, um, the, the stormwater report. Has that been done for this project? Christian, do you know the answer to that, Chris? There's no planning board permit required for this project, so we have not submitted. The only board is yourself, the Conservation Commission. <laughs> That's part of the reason, John. We were we were we've been so pushing so hard about the stormwater issue because we know, first of all, that that these the new numbers are coming out from the state DEP. As a matter of fact, there's some towns that have actually gone ahead and are using these numbers, new numbers already, or even frankly, more aggressive numbers. Um, and the reason we're because this this uh, stuff is going on at this point that we're trying to to uh, we approached the planning board or a couple members of the planning board and we were told that they don't see this as under their in their under their purview. Again, this is part of the reason why we think that given this confluence of circumstances, given the the, the sense of the environmental sensitivity of this this area, that besides the PFAS and all this stuff, we need to take a look at the stormwater issue. Right, uh, Chris. I'd like to. I'd like to hear from you because um, I am very interested in the fact that if new numbers are coming, I want to make sure that you know we don't push this to a vote. Uh, you know, <laughs> a month or two in advance of new numbers that would be relevant to our decision making. Um, is there a consensus that the DEP will come out with the new numbers 
end of summer. Uh, Paul, I think you said that. I don't know, Chris, do you have any um, information? I don't have any different information than, than Paul presented. I know that they're being reviewed right now. We were asked at the last meeting whether or not we comply. We comply with the present numbers as they exist today in the regulations. I'd be happy to have our civil engineer take a look at the uh, proposed numbers out of MassDEP because I don't think there's a significant change from one to the other that would affect it. And if there are minor tweaks that need to be made to the drainage plan to accommodate the new numbers, we're, we're happy to do that. I, I think that would be very beneficial to the commission members. That was, that, that's, that's interesting to me too, because my understanding is that the, uh, the numbers that they're using now are at least 20 years old. And the, the, as we all know, even just anecdotally looking around rainfall rainfall totals and uh, are getting weather events are just getting much more um, much more extreme all the time and more frequent uh, patterns are changing too quite frankly about whether whether where there's drought and whether there's heavier periods of rain and in here in New England my understanding is that they're expecting more dry periods but but in periods where there's going to be precipitation they're expecting it to be heavier and that's that's one of the reasons why I think I'd, I'd like to be able to use the new numbers. And Chris, if you could make that happen, uh, just apply the the data that you have to the new numbers, that would be a, a huge benefit to us. Now we'll talk to our civil engineer about it in the morning and and um, get back to you on that. But I have no um, reluctance to do that at all. Happy, happy to do as long as we can get the uh, the most accurate numbers out of MassDEP and exactly what they may or may not impose. Um, and I'll, we'll find that out and I'll get back to you. Perfect. Thank you very much. Uh, are there questions from Commissioner? And, and Chris, I didn't mean to cut you off. Do you want to respond to anything that you've heard tonight as the uh, proponent? Um, well, there was a lot tonight. Um, and a lot of it I agreed with, quite frankly. I, you know, PFAS is bad. Um, you know, we'll say it too. Um, I don't disagree with with much of the conversation, and we try and minimize whatever we can, um, whenever we can. Whenever we work with products, we want to understand their impact on the environment, their impact on human health. What I would urge the commission members to do, we did submit the TetraTech study, which is that study that you held up, Mr. Chairman. Kathy Bowen had asked for two hard copies, and we submitted electronic copies. So you have a PDF of the whole thing. Um, as part of your record file, if if you want more printed copies, it's just, it was a big thick report, so she said two copies would be sufficient. But I'm happy to make nine if nine is what the commission wants. But what what I would urge you to do, because there's a lot of reference being made to the scientific analysis that was done in that study, that was um, reviewed by TetraTech uh, and then peer reviewed by Horsley Witten, and I would strongly encourage you to read their results for yourself and understand what they found and why they found it. Because um, yes, PFAS is found in a lot of things, but they look specifically at it, at the questions of, does it have an impact on groundwater and does it have an impact on human health? I'm not gonna paraphrase their answers for you. I just encourage you to go read it on your own. I, I, did, I didn't realize there were only two copies and I, I had one of them. So I thought everybody had it, but Steve, can you send the PDF to all the commission members? Yes. Perfect. Thank John, you. if you're John, if you're going to do that, it, it might be it might be useful also to take a look at the uh, at the Oak Bluffs Planning Board final ruling because they basically are going through all that material too, and they came to a different conclusion. So it might be worthwhile doing that. And let me mention one last thing 
part of the reason why we, why we want this, um, why we would like to bring somebody in, because the fact is that, that we're all, I'm not trying to, to cast any shadow on, on, on anybody and, and or the, the people, the civil engineers or people who are doing this material, doing this stuff right now for Mr. Huntress. But the fact is that, that we all understand that, that, that people who are doing these things are consultants and they, they know who the client is. And in fact, um, Fine I is the town about of Milton, Paul. Fine is the town of Milton. The town of Milton, a portion of the town of Milton, Chris, that wants this field and that neglected to actually uh, bring any of the neighbors into the planning. So there is that. And what I would like to just point out is that that we, at a, at a preliminary basis, talk about Horsley Witten, we, we, we talked to Scott Horsley. And Scott Horsley said, looking at the plans, found four areas that he was concerned about. And he said that jumped out at him right away. So clearly there are, there, there's uh, some uh, disagreement. I don't mean to interrupt you, but you said Scott Horsley disagreed with what part of the plan? Are you talking about the- No, no, no. I said, what I said was that we, we, asked, we asked Scott to take, take a quick look preliminarily. And we, in fact, as a matter of fact, we, that's the point at which we discovered we couldn't afford to hire him. But he took a look and he found four areas, including you know the PFA stuff we've been talking about, water quality and the thermal impacts to the stream. Stream. He found various MS4 implications that he thought were going to be problematic, and but also he talked about higher hy hydrologic alterations to the wetlands in the stream. So I think it's it would be useful if um, if we were able to actually bring somebody in to take a look at all this material too. Oh, okay. The reason I asked you about Scott Horsley is I didn't know if you were talking about the chemical analysis, the PFAS, and the implications no, no, of no. the risk to health, as opposed to the hydrological, you know, the runoff calculations and the drainage issues. Yeah, I mean, clearly he's familiar with with the risks involving PFAS generally. But my part of my point is that that again, this is a complex situation. We're talking about the PFAS, but we're not intending for this argument to rest on one thing. That, that we think that 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 there are two or three significant issues that we have to look at. We have to look at them both separately and together. John, there's a number of people that have had their hands up raised for a while that are looking to. Um, yeah, I've got a, I've got a quick question before we go to members of the public, um, and, and this is to Chris, I guess, and also to to Dr. Bennett. So. Uh, we we haven't had the opportunity to review the TetraTech uh, report and therefore the data. My my question has to do with uh, Chris. Do you know um, as we learned in in one of the previous uh, slideshows that the method of extracting these compounds differs? That the alcohol extraction maybe not such a great way, and now there's a new art standard. It seems. And given that the TetraTech report was from 2011, I think, um, I, I'm just wondering when we look at when we when we consider the, the the data, you know, I just want to make sure we're you know we're comparing apples and apples and not you know that the that the extraction method is done in a completely different way. I am. Does that make sense? It, it it does to a certain extent to me. I'm a landscape architect, not a toxicologist, so um, <laughs> I'm not going to be able to answer that. But I can tell you that the Tetratech study uh, was done in 2021. It's much more 2021, recent, yeah, 2011, um, and I believe it was reported out in 2022. So, okay, yeah. um, so the the findings in there are fairly recent, but the extraction methods I would 
you know, I'd have to defer to a toxicologist. Or well, it may be in there. I guess my question is, is it, you know, is it in the well, report? The extraction it's methods in are in there. They are ah, okay. exactly okay. the They're the extraction methods used, <clears throat> excuse me, in Tetratech's report are the same ones that everyone's using today. The only new okay. test is for oily matrices um, that EPA has come up with since the Tetratech report came out. So those methods are standard. Okay, got it. Thank you. Thank you, Kyle. Uh, Catherine Burek, you, I've got your hand there. Thank you. Um, I want just want to say that Kristen was talking about the Tetra Tech report. She was referring to it. Are, is everybody aware of that? Uh, I am, but I read okay. it. But I, but All I, right. Yeah. I'm just saying she was explaining it to everyone. Um, Mr. Kiernan, do we have um, a sense of when we will get a decision on whether we will be able to hire a hydrologist? And I'm asking that because we're very concerned about the thermal effects of stormwater and that you all are missing a letter that the, the Neponset River watershed sent um, six weeks ago to the commission. And we would really like to enter that into the public record tonight since it's gone missing. Um, so those two things I would like to ask. I would also like to ask that you think about appointing a subcommittee to, to um, consider the use of real natural organic grass in that field um, so we can be stewards, good stewards of that area. Um, so could you respond to those um, just before we move on? Of course. And Thank I'll you. take them in reverse order. I'm, I'm not sure we'd need a subcommittee. I mean, it's a small enough commission and we're all pretty hands-on. But uh, the other points were the letter from the Neponset River uh, Watershed Association. I'm not familiar with Kathy Bowen is our <laughs> administrative assistant. She's very good. And I will call her first thing in the morning and, and find out if we can track that down. And if not, perhaps you could uh, go back to the author and have him just resend it. Mr. Kiernan, we have- we, a, uh, I found it. I, oh, I found it. it. We came okay. by email uh, on April 11th. It just, it it got some, it got a lot somewhere in the track because okay. it was, it was never made part of our packets. Okay. I just like to say they respond very specifically to the notice of intent. And we do have someone here who was willing to read the letter tonight to enter it into the public record if you would allow that to happen. Um, but I'll let you answer those other questions. Uh, yes, and the first question was help you. <laughs> help um, when do you think you'll have a decision on the hydrologist um, that we might hire um, because you, of deep concerns? You can hire anybody you want. I, we would I like mean, you to fund it though. We would like you to help okay. us get the client to fund it because we can't afford it, frankly. Um, we've looked into it. It's too much money. Um, it really is. Um, I think the field is inches away from an AE flood zone, inches. Um, I, I noticed it at the site walk. Um, it's the hundred year flood zone. Um, it is very, very clear that we are going to have some thermal disruption to the to the wetlands there in one way or another. I think it would be extremely prudent to hire a hydrologist that is independent and can look at this project. The, the, the water comes from fields above and comes down three tiers. 
it's not just one field. It's not just a, a discrete field. It's three fields. And that's I'm, what I'm, we're very, I'm yeah. Astutely aware of that. We we're not. We heard of the high school, and they, that water goes underneath the lower field. Yeah, we're not. Drain lines, and that, that's on the engineering plans that we've already seen. We would like those plants, sorry, we would like those plans reviewed, though, if, if you could help us with that, um, if you have the ability to do that. And then this, uh, the second thing is that we would really like to enter that letter into the public uh, record because it's apparently um, not been read, and it is extremely important the deposit river fine. You, you can you'll be able to do that but let me go back to the okay. question about hiring a hydrologist we don't have the capacity what we we don't have any money in the conservation commission what we do have is the statutory authority under chapter 44 section 53g to ask the applicant uh, to hire a you know hire us a consultant on hydrology um, and, I, and I'll ask for a consensus as to see whether or not that's appropriate in this instance. My view is that this is more a chemical issue, uh, the PFABs, than it is the, the drainage and the runoff. I, I'm not, um, I don't have a problem with the drainage calculations, but your point is well taken though, and we may need you know, assistance with a, a toxicologist. Um, and that would fall within the purview of chapter 44, section 53G. But I, having said that, I don't know if there's a consensus here to do so in this instance. So I just go around and, and see if any of the commission members uh, think that's appropriate in this instance. John, are you looking for a motion? No, I'm just looking for a consensus to see whether or not anybody thinks that's a good idea. But could we also ask them if it's a good idea to hire a hydrologist? That's what we're asking. Sure. Yeah. Okay. okay. Thank you, that's sir. That that's the question. I don't know, Arthur, Tom, Hans. Uh, do you feel that I'm I, I'm comfortable with the drainage calculations that I see? We've already addressed the issue from uh, the upper field and the parking lot drainage. They're on the current plans. Um, I'm I'm not sure what a what a, a consultant would do on the drainage side of this, the hydrology side of this, um, although. There may be some significance to, you know, getting into this impervious uh, component. I'm, I'm not sure. I understand everything that was said tonight. Uh, Kayla made a good presentation about how that if you turn a faucet on on a screen, and it depends on the volume and velocity of the water. I, I understand that. But I'm looking to see whether or not uh, Hans, Tom, Arthur, Todd, Wendy, mm -hmm. uh, does anybody feel the need to ask the applicant to engage a consultant in this case. I have a comment about that. Uh, sure. I don't, yeah, I, I have the stormwater report here. I don't understand how the system works myself. I really don't. I've been looking at the plans and reading the narrative and I still don't get what happens to the water. So as far as hiring somebody else, first I want to see if anybody here can answer my question. And uh, that's just where I am now. Well, I, that if, if you could hold that, and, and maybe you could get back to Chris on that. But um, so I'm not sure what you're saying in terms of a a toxicologist or b a hydrologist. I think before I can answer that question, I have to ask the proponent about what the plan is. In Chris, words, can, can you handle that question, Chris? I'm here, and and. 
Oh, always happy to bring our civil engineer. Somebody asked in the chat room who our civil engineer is. Civil engineer is Marshonda Associates out of Stoneham. Yeah, I'm looking at their report. And uh, right. my first question is, um, the report says rain will be absorbed first by the gravel layer and then by the soil underneath. Does that mean that there won't be any efforts to collect stormwater under the field other stormwater. than the gravel layer? The, the, um, there are efforts to collect stormwater. So that, that field sits on a, a layer of crushed stone that can hold, that's where we refer to that two thirds of an acre foot of stormwater because it takes what's called the time of concentration, the amount of time that it takes a raindrop to hit a surface and then migrate its way through the stone and find the drainage system and get out, that, that field will effectively hold two thirds of an acre foot of stormwater during that time of concentration, which is what we're talking about, which helps it get, which helps that discharge and holds it back until after the peak storm event has already gone by so that you're not discharging this stormwater on top of stormwater that's coming either from upstream and other sources, if that's, if that's helpful. Okay. Um, so I was looking at the plans and I didn't see whatever with the pipes or collection devices there are under the field on the plans, but they are there, huh? I just couldn't find them. They are, they are. And I can, um, tell you exactly what page they're on. Let's see. They're on sheet L2, which is the, um, grading and drainage plan. And you'll see details for it on L4 detail one and two. Could you like describe verbally what they are? Sure, there's a panel drain system that sits at the bottom of that um, crushed stone layer. The panel drain is approximately 12 inches wide and about one inch or one and a half inches tall and lays horizontally on the subgrade and runs in a herringbone fashion over to a collection system, which collects half of the field uh, at a time and then, and then discharges it into either the, the pipe on the east or west side of the, of the existing field. All right, I'm, I'm trying to find the plan you referred to. You called it L2. L, it's L2. L2 is the grading drainage plan. And I'm happy to share a screen too, if people want to see it. Yeah, if you don't... could, Chris, that would be helpful. Yeah. I've got L3 and L1. You should have the whole plan set. So. This is L2. Can everybody see the screen? Are you seeing a field? Yes. Okay. Yeah, you can see it. Um, so what you see within uh, green are the limits of the synthetic turf field. These angled dashed lines here are your panel drains. They're every 25 feet on center. They sit under the field. Did the you say panel drains? Panel drains, yes. What does that mean? Well, it's a it's a it's a continuous drain that's about 12 inches wide and about an inch tall and it comes in a roll big long 200 foot rolls and it's wrapped in a marafi it's like an, an an egg crate kind of a structure to it but it's wrapped in a marafi filter fabric so that it will stop the fines and stones from getting into the into the drainage system and those lay flat under the the cross section of crushed stone and and would bring the storm water if you follow my cursor down the field to a collector pipe in this instance the, the pipe runs this way and ties into the existing drainage pipe here that would head towards Pine Tree Brook. So this half of the field here that you see on the lower part of the page drains um, 
to the right and then comes in and picks up this collector here, which kind of heads heads north, if you will, or northwest. Um, and the lower half of the field here drains to the west and heads down to Pine Tree Brook in that in that fashion. Mr. Huntress, why aren't these stamped by an engineer? I'm sorry, I, I'm not even sure who's speaking. I'm sorry, this is Hans Van Lingen. Um, so these are all stamped by you as a as a landscape architect, but they're not stamped by an engineer. They they are stamped by me, and the stormwater report and um, and details are stamped by the civil who's reviewed this as well. If you didn't put those uh, panel drains in, what would happen? The water wouldn't move through the site um, sufficiently, and you could get ponding in certain areas. Uh, in other words, the the subsoil, the sandy subsoil, wouldn't absorb it rapidly enough. I would say that would be true whether, whether it's natural grass or synthetic, yes. All right. I'm sorry. I, I didn't understand this diagram, and, and I haven't seen a cross-section either of the actual artificial turf. Toward the end of the there's there's a lot of drawings toward the end of the submission, and uh, number we've one says typical. Now, Mr. Palmer, if I could, we we've yeah. given. I've I've received those. We we've given printed copies, full sets, and and digital copies, full sets. Well, if this is it, number one isn't very informative to me. That is the diagram, the cross section of the turf, right? Number one is part of it that shows the panel drain, correct, and the depth of the depth of gravel. Yeah, is there isn't there something underneath the gravel, a pad or something? No. Um, no. Well, I think you're confusing that a little bit. Let me zoom in on this. I just zoomed in. Did everybody's screen zoom yeah. in too? I, yes, it I, did. Thank you. All right, that, that's good. So but, you know, here here the plan is for Brock infill, but it's not labeled Brock infill here, right? Well, bear with me and I'll, and I'll explain what it is. Um, so this is the cross section through the turf field. You've got eight inches of what's called free draining gravel subbase. That's, that's free draining stone. This is the panel drain that sits every 20 feet on center under that crushed stone or, or free draining gravel. See where my cursor is now? It says synthetic turf underlayment. Right. That's the pad. How thick is that? It's hard to read how thick it is. That would be a one inch pad. Yeah, um, and that is that uh, stuff made of pine wood you talked about? No, uh, the pine is actually the infill that goes within the fibers. If you remember Ms. Bennett, who gave a very good explanation of how that system comes together, the infill actually sits in the fibers itself above the turf, and there's a backing that would, set, that would separate the turf from the pad. So the pad sits physically below the turf, but is separated from the infill by the backing. All right, you do have like two, three, four layers there that are only in the top couple of inches. And it's just hard for me with my eyes to see all those layers there and figure out what they are. Tell me what um, the stuff at the bottom is, existing compacted subgrade. That would be the existing subgrade that's there now. We would excavate out um, eight to, to 12 inches, depending on, on what we're doing for grade back in with this additional gravel subbase material, but this would be uh, an inorganic uh, existing subgrade layer that would be compacted and then a Marafi fabric, a filter fabric would go on top of that 
again, to, to minimize the amount of fines that could move up um, during a stormwater event and potentially contaminate that stone. So there's a filter fabric that goes, um, here's that note that Marafi 140N goes over the entire subgrade. All right, I'm, I'm starting to get it now. I thank you. Uh, referring again to the Marginita report, they did five test pits. And if you go to um, the aerial photograph showing the test pit locations, do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I don't have it in front of me, no, but... Um, yeah, I think it's... Uh, I'm looking through here now. I just... Yeah, here it is. I'm holding it up. Can okay. people see? Well, all I, I want to say about this... You like me to stop oh, screen share so we can yeah. see more of them? All right, I'll try that. Share screen. Well, let me stop. Um, if I hit share screen, maybe you can see it. I don't know. You would, yeah. Okay, I, I understand what page well, you're on. All right. At any rate, I'm sorry you can't see it. But if you look for the test that's on here, you can't find them. It's supposed to be a diagram showing where they are, but they're very hard to see. Um, later on, there are photographs of the pits. Here I'm holding them up again. And uh, those are test pits. And my issue with those is that presumably when you dug those test pits, you're able to Mr. Palmer, I'm not sure if you're aware, but you've screen shared your, your email with us. You may want to close that up. That makes no sense. I'm not. Oh, whoever's screen shared. Right. I, I don't know why you can't see what I'm holding in front of the camera. But at any rate, um, in those test pits, you would have been able to find a groundwater elevation by the colors in the sand. Correct. And yet, that's never not recorded on any of the lots. And that would have been helpful to know what the groundwater levels are under this field and how they fluctuate over the year. I think the test pits were dug in August, and yet um, it looks like dry sand, but the engineers didn't note any groundwater markings, which are left in the soil. So I felt, again, that the application doesn't have key information that I would like to have. Like, what are the groundwater levels under the field? Mr. Palmer, I can I can assure you the information is there, and I would be more than happy to schedule a time for our civil engineer to present to the commission and answer whatever questions you may have. But the information, All right. All right. The information um, is in the stormwater report. It's also in the geotechnical investigation that's submitted as part of the stormwater report. So That's what I've been looking at. And I'm the logs for the book for that. Okay. There's no, there's no, uh, all it says is there was no groundwater showing. It doesn't say it was any groundwater elevation markings that are left by groundwater, you know, during the high water in the winter. So I, I didn't think the report included any information on annual high groundwater, but those were my two items I was curious about. So I will let other people speak now. Uh, Tom, uh, but to answer the question, uh, now that you've talked to, to Chris, are you comfortable that you'll be able to get the information that you need on drainage or do you think that we need a hydrological consultant? 
Um, I don't, I don't feel like now that I need one. I feel like I need a basic understanding. That's what I want. I want to know how this thing works. And I think the existing people can tell me if I get a chance to ask all the questions. All right. I, I agree uh, with you. Let, let me go right to Ingrid. Um, do you feel a need for a, uh, a toxicological um, consultant? Or a, tox a, I, I thought the question was a hydrological consultant. Uh, well, you're right. It came in as a hydrology uh, consultant. Yeah, right? I, I feel like the issues in my mind. Uh, I mean, one is the heat issue, but but also the, the the more on the chemistry side, less on the hydrology side. That, that that's where I am. But so let me go back to you and ask again: Do you think that we need a, a toxicologist as a consultant? Yeah. Okay. I question whether a toxicologist. That's in my mind, that's more of a, a clinician type, you know, human response to, to the chemicals. I think what we're, what we're asking here is really the significance and the manner and the amount of leaching and generation of the toxic compounds. So I'm not mm -hmm. sure it's a toxicologist. So what would the discipline be to assist us in that arena? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, you know, an environmental chemist would be would be appropriate. All right, uh, Arthur Doyle, you always have good balanced judgment. What do you think? Uh, I miss every once in a while when those pistons join, but right now my leaning is to get a wrap up of the information from the uh, current engineers and uh, defer um, the hydro hydrological issue until a later date, maybe we considered then, but I don't see it right now. All right. Are you good with that, Todd? I, I agree with Arthur. All right, Hans? I'm abstaining on this one. Wendy? Um, I'm, I'm not comfortable with the, with the water quality information that, that we've received um, from the, the proponent. And, and I, I would like to see some, some more information um, particularly with the heat pollution and PFAS. So that's on the, the, the chemistry side. Right. That, yeah. That's where I'm coming from, too. I just can't articulate who exactly, you know, would, would be most appropriate for that. John, I, I would think that, that a hydrologist is also well-versed in water quality as well as quantity, um, and especially if it's a a multidiscipline firm that that has chemists on staff. Uh, understood. All right. Well, I, I just I, I want to be able to move this along, although I think we've got a built-in delay here, and it may be um, it, it may be illusory delay because if we can get the numbers from DEP now that we think they may be headed towards, um, and Chris has indicated that he'll he'll be able to rerun the data that he has using the new numbers. Um, that that will be an assist. I, I'm just simply trying not to delay the decision making um, uh, any longer than we have to. Um, so I guess my suggestion would be that uh, if we could search for somebody that's a at a multi as Wendy you indicated a multidisciplinary group. I mean we've used in the last. Um, 
two occasions when we've used the consultant, we used GZA and they seem to have uh, um, a lot of different sub-disciplines within their purview. And there are other companies as well. And just for the public's benefit, what we typically do is we look and we ask for, you know, as many suggestions as possible. And we usually look at, you know, three. And, and uh, because cost is a factor, we, we tend to go to the lowest responsible bidder, uh, someone with the expertise to do that. So maybe we could, what we could do before the next meeting is to, is to ask some people, uh, a, agencies, uh, businesses, environmental consulting firms, you know, how can we find the right person for this? And I know other cities and towns have gone through the same situation that we're going through now. So I, I think that we'll be able to get some data. Today, just today, I collected data from uh, the current situation going on in uh, Martha's Vineyard, because I know they're involved in litigation now, and I know it's a planning board issue as opposed to a conservation commission issue there. I've, I've collected some data from the town of Arlington, uh, including a case that went to uh, the DEP for a superseding order, and I received a decision uh, just this afternoon on that. So it's uh, it's an issue, a topic that's of great concern. So I think we'll be able to uh, look around, and, and I, I thank you for your suggestion that a consultant might be appropriate, and just give us until our next meeting, June 9th, to see if we can come up with a, a suggested one. Uh, uh, Ms. Burak, thank you very much for the suggestion. John, can we acknowledge the two people that have had their hands up for a very, very long yeah, time? Yeah, it's uh, not, yes, I'm, I'm looking <laughs> at it. I see it, I see the hand. Elaine, you're on. Uh, I, I think, think Ms. Lee has actually been, been on a for... very long time, so I will defer to Georgia Lee, who's been waiting a very, very long time. Okay, Georgia Lee, you're on. Hi, thanks, Elaine. Nice to see everybody. Um, I really appreciate this discourse, and um, I am holding the letter from the Neponset River Watershed Association. Um, I will uh, distribute this digitally, John, to you tomorrow so that everyone on the committee has it. Um, I'd like to read two paragraphs quickly. Um, the letter is written by um, Carrie Malloy Snyder. She's the advocacy director at NEPRA. She says, while other testimony is focused on the many threats that turf fields create for personal health and safety of the citizens of Milton, there are also many environmental hazards that the pro proposed field may create as well. These hazards primarily are introduced to the environment off the fields after rain and snow events. This water comes into contact with the field before it heads directly into Pine Tree Brook and subsequently into the Neponset River, bringing with it not only potentially dangerous chemicals and materials, but also temperature increases during summer months. These increased temperatures threaten a Massachusetts Department of Fish and Game designated cold water fishery resource. Um, I will share this for Georgia, you're going in and out a little bit. At least you are for me. Yeah, can, same for me. Yeah. Can you same. adjust your, your microphone? I'm just going to talk closer. How's that? That's perfect. Thank you. <laughs> okay, great. Uh, so you're all going to have this letter tomorrow anyway in your inboxes. But in addition to that letter, I want to point out that the Neponset River is a super fund site. Um, going to see enhanced utilization of the Neponset going forward. And they are clean. The federal government is committed to cleaning up the Neponset River. And we are questioning what we put in our water. 
I think we need to look very carefully about the recreation that we all want to do at the Neponset River going forward. No one wants to swim in a river that has microplastics in it. No one wants to eat an oyster that they caught on the banks or estuary uh, that has PFAS chemicals in it. So I think we need to be really careful about what's going on downstream because we are gonna be canoeing on the Neponset once it gets cleaned up. Thank you. Thank you, Georgia, very much. Thank you, Georgia. Elaine? Hi, thank you, I'll be quick. Um, I did send a letter, I hope you all have it. Um, the one point I wanna make, I know there's a lot of attorneys on this commission and some of you are probably litigators and I just wanna make the point as a litigator myself and one who deals in scientific issues that it is often the case that one side prevents, presents expert testimony and it turns out not to present the whole story. Here we have a situation where one side has the funds to hire an expert and the other does not. And so I would really implore the commission to take into account the kind of discussion you just had about whether you can use your powers to require the applicants to pay for an independent expert. And, and I just wanna be very clear because I think Mr. Huntress is trying to be helpful, but he's saying, oh, my civil engineer can do this or my this can do that. That is not what we're asking for and it's not what the law provides for. It provides for an independent expert to come and look at this situation. I'll just remind you all of deflate gate. And when the NFL put in their expert, everybody thought we deflated those footballs. And when the Patriots came back and put in their expert, everybody thought, oh, look, we've been exonerated. Point being that everybody is capable of hiring an expert that will say what they want them to say and present their side of the story. What we need here is an independent expert to get to the answers on these challenging and evolving questions. So thank you very much. Thank you, Elaine, very nice. Um, all right, I think we've collected about as much data um, as we can for one night uh, with the consent of the um, applicant. We'll continue this until June 13th. Steve, am I correct? Yes. All right, is that uh, acceptable to you, Chris, as the applicant? Uh, it is, but you had said earlier June 9th. Is it June 9th or June 13th? June 13th. 13th? Yes. Yeah, that's fine. All right, great. Thanks, Chris, very much. Thanks, everybody, for your patience. Uh, yeah, the 9th is a Friday. Um, so the 13th is a Tuesday. I did prepare, and I'm not going to show it today, Mr. Chairman, but an alternatives analysis, which we will submit um, hard copies of so that you'll have it and we'll be ready to speak to it whenever you're ready. That's perfect. We can lead, uh, lead off with that uh, on the 13th. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks to all. John, off of here, uh, just before we leave this, I don't want to... Uh, skip over the fact that we really do, at least I do, want to have a walkthrough on the engineering plan so yes. that we all are on common ground. Yeah, yeah, that's a follow-up to the questions that uh, Tom Palmer asked, or is it talking about something different? That's correct. Okay. And, and that was offered by Chris in response. Yes. I'd be, I'd be happy to do it. Um, on June 13th, we can have our civil engineer here as well to answer whatever questions. And to Ms. Blaze's uh, point, uh, some of the questions that were asked were specific to our plans, which is why I offered our civil engineer. I understand and appreciate the, the need often for independent third party, and I have no objection to whatever the commission wants to do. Um, so happy to do it. But if there are specific questions to why we did things or how we did things, I think it's appropriate that our team you know, answer those and and um, and provide you the answers that you're looking for. Mr. Chairman, I appreciate the offer of questions being answered, but I would 
prefer that we start with a, an actual walkthrough of the engineering plan, and then questions can come through that. Absolutely. I agree. Are you talking about at, at our next meeting in June? Yes, please. Of course. Yeah, that, that makes it. We'll lead off with that. All right, Chris? Yes. All right. Thank anything, you. Anything else before we go on to the next agenda item? Have we heard from everybody who wanted to speak? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> well, I don't see any other hands up other than Elaine and Georgia, but they've already spoken to them. All right, I think we're good to go on to the next uh, item. Thanks. Thanks all very much. Uh, next on the agenda is request for certificate of compliance at 113 Woodland Road. Do we have the applicant? Yes. Hi, I'm here, Nancy Latanzio. Hi, Nancy. Hi, how are you all? Good, thanks. Um, very interesting. I learned a lot from what we just uh, listened to. So, um, yes, our proposal for 113 Woodland Road came before the commission in the spring of 21. You all uh, issued the orders of conditions in the fall of 2021. We actually built the landscape last spring, and now we have our as-built. And um, if you'd like, uh, I, I haven't done one of these before, so I don't know how much recap you want. I'm happy to walk you through what the work we were supposed to do was and um, show you a few pictures and look at the as-built. If you'd like, I could share my screen. Nancy, that would be great. Can I ask you a question? Um, I I may have just misplaced it. We've, I've got so many documents here, but did you submit a letter? No, I did not. I, I was just rereading the um, the orders of conditions, and I see that a, a letter is required. I did not realize. A, you mean a letter from me or from the uh, surveyor? From from you or the surveyor that. Uh, Sorry, no. Substantial compliance with the order of conditions. No, I'm sorry. I didn't realize that was uh, required so that you you did not misplace anything. I didn't Great. send one. I feel better. Thank okay. You. So that's something you will need. Yes, but if you could just walk us through uh, what was done and uh, sure. take it from there. Can you let me share my, I can share my screen? Okay, great. Yeah. Uh, can everyone see the photographs that I have here? Yes. Okay, great. Yes. So uh, the reason that we're, we're here is because my clients uh, uh, made a mistake after they purchased the property and they turned a bunch of wetlands, prop, uh, a bunch of wetlands actually into lawn. And this is the before picture. Um, I want you to look at this rock here because I'm going to show you that rock in another picture. So all of this area here that was lawn had, to, it was part of our um, mission to, um, to bring this back to something resembling the prior conditions. And I'll show you the second photograph, which is the after photograph. So um, let's see, excuse the jumping around. That rock that I showed you before was is over here. So previously the lawn went all the way to that rock, just to give you a visual, we have the drawings, but so uh, this entire area here that is now mulched and planted is the area in the in the uh, vegetated wetlands that was turned into lawn before. Everything that you see now here comprises that area. 
what we did was we added, um, I think it was eight trees, about 45 shrubs and 106 herbaceous uh, plants in here. And uh, that was the piece that we were required to do to remediate the mistake that they made. They had also, if you might remember, they had also asked if, if they could be allowed to have a patio uh, at the same time. Uh, and so that was sort of a second part of our proposal. And uh, this patio is outside the 25 foot zone. Uh, we used permeable pavers, really highly recommend this techo block paver called Aquastorm. It worked out really well. Which So this is a permeable application here with grass as infill inside these pavers. Um, we were asked to mark the line where the 25 foot zone was and we used these boulders to mark that line. Behind the boulders is a rain garden, one of two rain gardens that we proposed. The other one is over here. I don't have a picture of it, but it's on the other side of the house. And um, there are several other components and I'm gonna switch to the survey unless anyone has any questions on what they see right here. No, that's good, thank you. Okay. Okay, so this is the as-built survey. Move this. So um, here is the planted area. If you can see my cursor moving, this is the big planted area that we took the lawn out of. We had requested to keep a portion of lawn in the 25 foot zone. That's what this is here. It's uh, hard to see without any colors here, but it says lawn here. Um, the dotted line is the, the wetlands border. And here is the patio area right here. Let me see if I can zoom in on this a little. Hmm. Yeah. This odd shaped piece is the patio area here. Um, the one thing that you may remember was we had a big debate about how we had requested to have 100 square feet of that patio in the buffer zone. And you all said we could have 40. And in the end, when we built it, it was less than that. It was 31 square feet in the buffer zone. Um, they also did change the deck. It doesn't, it's everything is outside of the 25 foot zone that was part of our orders of conditions to make sure the stairs were outside of that. And that is um, what happened. They had had uh, a patio here. It was more or less underneath the old deck. The old deck was in, in this area here. So they had that um, patio there and they decided for looks to just take that out and match it with the new patio we put in. So that is all now permeable paver underneath there, all that Aquastorm paver that I showed you. A um, Couple of other details. There had been going back to the inception of this project, which was like, I think 2009 or something, when the house was first built, there had been a fence right here and it long since gone. And the commission asked us to mark that line somehow. We put in a line of cobblestones in the ground there to mark that as the line that approaches the, uh, the wetlands. Other planting areas, we added uh, a planting area here with some natives in it. I'll show you the second rain garden. The second rain garden is back here behind the deck and we didn't take down any trees. We have a lot of plantings. There's a, a strip of lawn goes right through here. 
and joins with the front lawn. Everything to the right of that in here is a planting bed. And there was an area over here which we were at, which we wanted to restore as not lawn. So it basically, it basically was lawn. We didn't do anything to it and we're just letting it revert. So right now this area is in the process of reverting back to woods or whatever it chooses to become. Um, and let's see, I can tell you a little bit more about how we did with the plants. We did have some losses uh, in uh, plants and I had to replace some things. So the list that um, we had given you originally has some changes, but the quantities are there. Would you like me to give you more detail on that? Question: uh, yeah. Natives, Nancy. I'm sorry. Uh, replacements are with natives. Yes. Thank you. Uh, this is Steve. I'd like to remind the commission that the performance standard for restoration and plantings is 75% viability after two years of plant after planting. Okay. Sorry, Nancy. No, that's okay. How long so that means we have to wait in? two years for our certificate. Is that what you're saying? That's correct. Okay. It's first I've heard of that. So it's only it's only been Makes one sense. year. Yeah. It's in the regs. No, it it's in the regs, Nancy. Yeah. It's uh, only been one year. Is that no, correct? That makes, that, that makes perfect sense. Sure. So um, I guess I'll tell you the same story in two years, in a year then, another year. <laughs> we have to do this again. Well, this has been recorded, so maybe, you know, next we'll just turn it on and you can replay it. Yeah. No, most of the issues that I had, Steve, you just might be interested with the plants, are that it is so wet that I lost oh, of course. it. It's so yeah. very wet here. I had put in a couple of um, swamp white oaks and they didn't make it. Really? Which really surprised me. We put in some uh, birch and the birch are all fine. Uh, mm -hmm. Liriodendron is fine, but the, the, the swamp white oaks didn't make it. So I replaced uh -huh. them with Clethra, I mean, sorry, Amelanchier and Amnissa uh, Sylvatica. We'll see how those do. Were they yeah, river birch, uh, Nancy, or another type of birch? Yeah, river birch. They, they yes. would make it then. Yeah. yeah. It's an excellent choice. Yeah. Nancy, you... I forget, do you have any swamp azalea on this site? No. You mean native and naturally on the site? That, that you planted as part of the restoration? No, we didn't do swamp azalea. We did a lot of clethra and mm -hmm. cornus cerusia and, and cornus amomum, which the deer kind of have browsed, but they, they seem to be holding on. What about Atlantic white cedar, Nancy? Did you think about that? I just don't think I can. I don't know how, I can't, I can't get one can't that's bigger it? than two feet tall. Right, right. That's the it's issue with tough. that. I, I, would love, I would love it if that was commercially available, but. Right. Um, and um, we had really good luck with our uh, our Christmas ferns. Um, I planted a bunch of uh, autumn brilliance ferns that looked wonderful all through the season, but didn't come back. It was a very tough year for plant losses. I don't know if you're hearing that otherwise, but we lost oh, yes. a little bit yes. more than a, a normally a normal year. Yeah. Yeah, but the autumn brilliance aren't, aren't natives really. They're they're the cultivars. Well, I didn't think there was a, uh, we were banned from using cultivars, are we? We, the, the commission has a policy of trying to use natives whenever possible and not uh, cultivars and not 
hybrids, both. Okay. Just just to let you know. I have to replace them anyway, so we'll just go with a. I'll probably you. I'll probably put in a different fern. Sure. Sure. Makes I don't sense. think I want to repeat that experiment. Okay. Well, I'm sorry <laughs> to take up your time prematurely. Um, we will be back. All right. Well, it it looks good, Nancy. Actually, and. Yeah, it, it certainly comports with my memory of what we asked for. Okay. Yes. Great. I would agree Can with that. Can I just that. ask a quick question? Sure. Um, Nancy, could could you um refresh my memory? I I recall we had a a um a discussion about using micro clover, um as a lawn alternative. Is that something that ended up being incorporated or? No, no, I was hearing, I was hearing such mixed, no, we didn't do that. I was hearing such okay. mixed things about its success that I didn't want to risk it here. Yeah, yeah, I was curious, because just because it was such a tough year for plants, I was wondering right. if uh, if they survived and what the homeowner thought. Um, I'm also curious, um, what what are the homeowner's thoughts about the forest paver patio that you They planted? love it. They love I'm it. So They're glad to very, hear very happy with the outcome. They're happy with all great. their new plantings. They're, uh, yeah, despite, uh, of course, being unhappy to, about having to do the project in the first place, they've totally come around. They really enjoy it. Thank you for asking. And as an FYI, I tried some micro clover and lost it all last summer as well. Really? Did yeah. you use seed or sod? Seed. Hmm. Okay. Just, like just FYIs. Yeah. All right. Well, we look forward to seeing you next year, Nancy. Very thank good. You. Okay. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Okay. Thank you, Bye -bye. Nancy. Bye-bye. And next on the agenda is Amendment of Order of Conditions at uh, 1632 Canton Avenue. Uh, good evening. Hi. Uh, good this evening. This is Hale Smith, and I'm the, uh, the homeowner who's uh, uh, trying to uh, address an order or condition that was uh, part of part of the... Uh, initial decision uh, back about a year ago, over a year ago, I guess. We remember it well. Good to see you again. Good to see you, <laughs> Chairman Sheridan. Can, can you tell us about the, uh, the revisions or adjustments? Sure. Um, <clears throat> the original plot plan that was submitted with the application uh, had a conceptual um, a house design on it that I had actually drawn, but had not been designed by an architect. And uh, over the last year, I've been working with ART Architects, uh, J.B. Clancy, he's, he lives here in Milton, and he's designed um, a home that is slightly smaller than the footprint that I had submitted with the initial application, but uh, very similar in in shape and, and treatment. It's completely outside of the resource areas. Um, and uh, uh, I'm just resubmitting this as it's shown in, in exhibit two of a letter I sent, sent to the commission on May 2nd. Um, and um, I'm hoping that this it will be satisfactory to meeting the requirements of condition number 22. Uh, do you know what the the square footage reduction is? I've got the map in front of me. It looks good. You're outside the 100-foot uh, inner riparian, and you're outside of the 25-foot non-disturbance for, for the um, isolated 
uh, wetland, the farm pond. Yeah. Uh, so it looks good to me, uh, but can you tell us what the reduction in square footage is? Um, <clears throat> I can only give you a sort of a rough estimate. The main body of the house is the larger block. And that was originally a 40 by 40 foot two-story structure. And uh, the, the new, the new building um, is a 35 by 35 foot uh, block, two structure, um, two story structure. So it's, and, and the, also the, uh, you know, the angles are slightly different than they were in the, their uh, original schematic design. All right, well, I did have a, uh a chance to look at it. Um, it seems appropriate to me. Um, and I'll invite any comments from other commissioners and uh, members of the, butters and members of the public as well. But I would say this, that uh, we'd have to take two votes. One is whether or not it's a minor revision. Um, and if it is, then we can vote to accept it or not. Uh, okay. If, if it's a, not a minor, it would be a major uh, revision that it would require a new notice of intent. My suggestion is this is a minor revision. It comports with certainly the intent of the original order conditions. Um, and I, I think we can move forward. But before I, we do that, uh, I'd invite uh, commissioners to ask questions and make comments. Uh, is it the case that in the new plan, the garage is attached to the house where in the old plan it was separate? Uh, no, they, the, uh, the garage was always attached to the house. Um, I guess I'm reading it wrong. I... Yeah, no, it is, it's uh, the uh, garage is uh, it's basically a, a barn-like structure that has a loft in it. Um, then uh, a, a one-story shed to uh, at at one end of it, a two-stall garage with a shed, and then there's a two-story main part of the house, and then the uh, 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 the end uh, closest to the Blue Hills um, is a one-story master suite, first floor structure. Okay, I, I would say just eyeballing the plans that the new design does look smaller than the old one. Mr. Chairman, um, yes. I would say that the new plan comports uh, with the discussions at the site walks um, that we had for this property. I think that we have non-substantive changes. So I would move um, that there is no significant change that these are minor modifications. All right, Be before the motion is seconded because that'll put us into a discussion only among commissioners. Let me ask if there are any abutters or members of the public that have a question or would like to make a comment. Seeing uh, none, hearing none, Mr. we can move on. Chairman? Yes. This, this is Steve, and I just wanted to make the note that um, in cases like this, when you have a decrease in the surface area, that's also considered part of the minor modification classification is a decrease in surface area impervious yes. surface great agreed um so is there a second to Arthur's motion second okay is there any discussion 
Hearing none, we'll take a roll call vote. Hans, how do you vote? You're on mute. Uh, yes. Uh, Todd? Yes. Arthur? Yes. Wendy? Yes. Tom? Uh, what am I voting, that it's a minor modification? Yes. Yeah, I, I vote yes. And I, I vote uh, yes as well. Did, did I skip anybody? Uh, Ingrid, did I get you? Aye. Okay. Uh, all right, now is there another motion to accept this as a revision to the order of conditions? So moved. Thank, is there a second? Aye. Thanks, Wendy. Um, I saw you talk too, but Wendy did. Yeah, all, right. <laughs> <laughs> all right, any discussion? Hearing none, we'll do it again. Uh, roll call vote. Hans, how do you vote? Yes. Todd? Yes. Arthur? Yes. Tom? Yes. Ingrid? Yes. Wendy? Yes. And I'm, I'm a yes to John Kiernan. That's unanimous, uh, Hale. I think you're set to go. Well, terrific. And thank you very much. I, I appreciate that this is a slightly easier uh, item on the agenda than your first one. So, <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. And we still have a long night to go. <laughs> oh, okay. Thanks, well, Andy. You can come back. Thank you very much. You can <laughs> come back on June 13th. <laughs> uh, all right, next on the agenda is Notice of Intent 1365 Canton Avenue. This is a continued hearing. Marian, I'm here representing the applicant, Marion McKittrick. Hi, um, Yeah, hi. Um, we just want to ask for a continuance tonight. Um, we did get some very useful information from the site walk. Um, and we did create a calculation of the additional fill that would be required for um, finished loam, which was uh, 400 cubic yards. I need that for the Board of Appeals application, which is the 31st of May. That may also be continued, though, because I want to plan for that as well as, of course, to present to the commission. And we don't have a plan ready yet. So we would like to ask for continuance. And oh, also, okay. if there's any further input from the commission for that plan. Well, will the plan have the, the, the survey lines on it? I think you were going to survey the, the property the line. Supposed to have, we actually have to stake the site. Um, the, um, and just so you know, the owner has been working intensely to get his building permit, which he did succeed in getting last Thursday. Um, that gives us a good, that gives us some grace period to develop the best um, site plan, planting plan, and so forth that we can for this NOI. So, um, but, you know, more attention is going to be devoted to it going forward. Uh, we're supposed to stake the lines on the site. We haven't done that yet, as far as I know. Um, and then, uh, you know, there were a number of things that the commission wants regrading of the left slope. I think it's to, a, I don't have my detailed notes, but I think it was one and a half feet to one feet rather than three feet to one feet, which is the current grade. Um, they wanted to leave um, a certain portion of the rear yard as um, meadow. It's not going to be complete, you know, um, lawn. It's not going to be landscaped other than to be meadow. Um, and so all of that and, and much more would be shown on a five. I still think even in June, you may be getting a, a draft plan, a preliminary plan for further comment. Um, and uh, it may show um, landscaping details as well and what plantings are proposed. But we will bring back something in June. It may still be the, just the next step because it's going to take a while to develop all of the final plans. 
also just so you know, <laughs> there is a septic system on this property. Um, so there is going to be a separate septic um, and that's going to have to be improved because once the building's finished, there will be additional bedrooms and so forth. So th this is uh, fairly complicated. We're not making it part of this application just because we'd like to get the landscaping reviewed and get an idea of what needs to be done there. But you will also be looking at a septic system application as will the Board of Health. That requires a, a separate engineering plan and that has to pay attention to the um, 200 foot area and so forth. So just a little bit of information about what's coming, but it's certainly not ready yet for you to review. All right, thank you, Marion, and uh, thank you also for your patience, uh, because I, I know you were sitting through uh, a lengthy first item, so thank you. Okay, thank you. As long as I know we can continue to June, that's great. That's that's good with us. Thank you. All right. All right, good, good night. night. <laughs> uh, next on the agenda is 114 Hillside Street. Do we have an applicant, Steve? Uh, not to my knowledge, uh, we haven't received any further information from them either. I did check with Kathy. Okay, and for the public's benefit, uh, uh, we were there. Help me with the date, Steve. We did a site visit. Uh, was that the first? About the, the sixth. Six. It was the sixth six. that, that we That's did correct. a site visit there. So we're still awaiting okay. that. So why don't we continue that until uh, uh, June thirteenth? Next on the agenda is Notice of Intent 107-111 Highland Street, K-2-2, continued hearing. Yeah, uh, members of the commission, Ned Corcoran representing Northbridge Companies LLC, which is the applicant proponent for um, filed for this order, this notice of intent for an order of conditions for the development of a memory care facility at 107-111 Highland Street. Um, when we were last here, we explained some modifications that we were proposing to box culverts uh, crossing two intermittent streams. And I'd like to turn them to Paul Avery, who was our um, consulting engineer to walk through those plans. And then we can respond to any other issues or concerns that the, that the commission would have uh, at this time. Thank you. All right, thanks, Ned. Paul, you're on screen sharing. Um, yeah, do you see my screen? Yes, sir. Okay, great. So um, this is, and I actually have, you know, this is the, the version of the plan that was submitted, and then I've got an enhanced one I'll go to just in a second here. But here it is. This is, you know, we had previously in here the 24-inch culvert, which is consistent with the existing one. Um, at the request of the Conservation Commission, we went back and looked at it. Um, we were concerned uh, initially by the fact that there's a quite a bit of detention that takes place in this upstream area in the eastern and stream and relieving that just would then make it much more difficult um <clears throat> if not impossible to meet the standard two for not increasing uh runoff from the site but we looked at it and what we found was that uh we were able to do it these contours here and this i'm going to jump to a different version of this plan which is the same thing um but i've just colored it up to make it a little easier to look at. Um, the green here represents the edge of the BVW. You can see all the flags, you know, 2.11, all of this right here. So it all goes right around like this. Um, and then this area here, I've also turned on where the existing barn is. 
So what you can see is we're going to be taking out the barn anyway, that the area that would be lowered is all this area that's already developed by the barn and the driveway going up. And we've had the sidewalks. We've come down the driveway here, down the slope. Everybody's parked their cars in this area here. This plan proposes to basically lower this grade to an elevation that's down consistent with the wetlands around it. Um, and basically repurposing, you know, the developed uh, portion of the um, of this particular lot here uh, for the purpose of flood storage. And, you know, that is it. We ran the model this way. Uh, and as we looked at it, we, we found that that it works that by adding we're not adding as much. We're taking away the detention that would happen with the existing culvert. Um, and but we can mitigate it here by additional storage and um, not affect the runoff from the site, all of which happens um, at the uh, the outlet structure, the stone weir, as we've been calling it uh, here for the vernal pool. So that is that change. We've responded to a number of comments from Tetra Tech. Most of those were detail oriented. Um, you know, calling out top of wall, bottom wall, and, you know, minor little revisions here and there. Um, if you wanted to walk through each of those, um, we certainly could. Um, there wasn't really anything there that resulted in a substantive uh, design change. Um, the other thing, so, well, first of all, were there, are there any questions on this? No, I, I don't think so, but uh, I, I took notes on the Tetro tech uh letter and the and uh ned's response to it yep and um i did have a couple of questions and it relates to um i guess i've got two and i'm going to 33 34 the test pits because i, I Am I correct that the test pits in the area of this uh, infiltration system? Uh, can you go back to your screen share? Because I, um, I think it was in that area that the comments were related. So we'll, 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 I, I wanted to scan. Which comments were they? Um, I am looking at this is actually the response uh, for Ned's letter, April 25, 2023, but it's I think it's comment 34 from TetraTech. Oh, sure. So that one, um, hang on a second. I mean, I've, I've got the response right here that, that we pulled. I don't know if you need to see it or not. It's um, that one, um, we actually went and, and the response, we've done another letter back from TetraTech and, and they were mistaken uh, on it. And that we came back and have said that the rates we used are appropriate. Okay, but am I correct that that their comment 34, the test pits that they were talking about, albeit mistakenly, uh, is that in the area where you have the detention? Yeah, there, there, there are test pits at a number of places. So yeah, I can put this, I can put, you want that back up? I can- uh, Yeah, if you could, I just want to know- So if, I mean, I have, I have our response on the screen, uh, but it was, you know, there was a, a misunderstanding which we've resolved. Um, so if I go back to this here, yeah, so two of the two of the test pits were in here. Exactly. Okay, that's that's what I thought. I just wanted to confirm that that's what they were talking yep. about. But if that's mistaken now, if, but if you keep reading within, now I guess I'm on to the next one, 35, but keep that that up there because um, I want to know if there is an, any impact on the 
the vernal pool or that which was designated as the vernal pool. Uh, I'm actually looking at Ned's last page of his letter, April 25, 2023, which is responding to Tetratech's comment 35. And at the top of the last page, the first full paragraph saying, regrading the site to accommodate the project alters runoff patterns. I'm asking whether or not any of the additional compensatory flood storage in the area that you just had up on the screen, uh, what, if any impact, does that have on the- Okay, so, pool? all right. So so this is a complicated question here. This is number 35. And I'm, I know I took this off because I needed to see the comment to fully understand the question. So okay. I, I'm just going to Ned's response letter right here. Um, and we had a follow-up conversation with Sean Reardon of Tetratech last week, okay? And he said, he asked me, he said, well, you know, as you looked at this, um, and I'll put, I'll share again and put the thing, the picture back up here. Uh, where am I? Ah, share screen. Okay, so here's my screen. Let me go back to the regular one here. Okay, so, you know, he's sort of saying, you know, he's just talking about like the natural outlet structure here and um, saying, well, why don't, instead of looking at what the outlet structure is, why don't you just look at the amount of water that's going into the vernal pool? And oh, I'm sorry, I'm not showing, sharing here. Instead of looking at the outlet structure, why don't you look at the water, you know, going into the vernal pool? And, and it's like, Sean, Sean, we can't do that, okay? Because there's going to be more water going into the vernal pool area because we've taken away the detention that was happening with the driveway culvert. And I, and, and, um, I said, so, you know, the, the outlet structures remain the same. The way we model the outlet structure and the existing model and the proposed model are the same, but the ponds themselves are quite different because we've created all the additional storage that I just had on the screen that was shaded blue. And, and so Sean, we went back and forth on this a little bit and he goes, okay, I see what you're understanding. He says, let me, let me process that and wrap my head around it and uh, we'll revisit it. And so that's where we're at with that. So it's undetermined. I mean, what I'm really looking well, I don't, for, it, you know, quite frankly, I just think I've got to have the conversation where he's got to, he's got to see what it is. And, and I think once he understands, you know, I have the advantage that I've been looking at this for six months, you know, he's only been looking at it for a few weeks. And and probably amongst other things he's been doing, once I think he understands it, he'll he'll you can't. That's not the way the performance standard is written, and I can't I can't make it work unless I then take the twenty four inch culvert out and put like a twelve in there. And I don't think anybody wants that to happen. I'd have if I'm not doing the detention here on the one hundred seven Highland Street lot, which now becomes part of the Vernal Pool, then it would have to be um, upstream of it or we do something like we create some stormwater structure in here, but that I'm not sure that accomplishes anything. This would then become a separate structure or something like that, uh, whatever. So I need to basically come to an agreement with Sean on how we're measuring this. All right, what, what I'm really driving at, and I understand that this is not a certified vernal pool. This was done by agreement, so to speak, but yep. to the extent that it's a vernal pool, by definition, it's gonna dry out at part of the year. Um, with this additional water going towards the vernal pool, will it continue to be a vernal pool or will it be flooded? Uh, will it be underwater all year? Um, well, the, the outlet structure is lower, so they'll ultimately, after the storm, this is going to drain down the way it always did. Okay. Okay. Yes. 
All right, thanks. That's that's what I was asking about because yeah. I was trying to figure the out the storage is the storage the storage has to be above the outlet elevation or it doesn't do me any good. You understand what I'm saying? Yes, I do. Okay. Okay. Right. Yeah, I'm, 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 you know, I'm not, I'm confident that Sean and I will reach an understanding on this. He just, he, I, he just has to process it and I'm waiting to get back to him on that. So, okay. Right. And, and Tom Palmer, I mean, I, I think going way back, this was kind of your idea to in, increase the 24 inch culvert to a, you know, the eight foot span so that the critters could get underneath there. Correct? Yeah, and I would say, I don't, I wouldn't say there's any more water coming through. It's the same watershed, the same area of land that rain is falling on. It's just not being held back on the upstream side of that little culvert anymore. So there's not going to be more water going toward the vernal pool, I don't think. But there will be a different distribution of areas where that water um, passes on its way to the vernal pool. If I could um, share my screen, I'll show you the outlet below the driveway. Uh, see if we can see that. Can you see that? Not yet, Tom. All right, let me try sharing again. I'm trying to get back to Zoom. Hit share screen. All right, here's my screen. Do you see that? No, not yet. Huh. You have to hit share a final time. Again, all right. All right, I hit it a couple of times. See it now? No, not yet. Oh, I don't know why it doesn't work. All, it is, all I'm showing is a photograph I took of a puddle that's downstream of the culvert, and it's full of water in early spring. And in the background, you can see that little shed that's coming out for more wetlands. And what's interesting about this puddle is it has no defined outlet. There's no stream going from there to the vernal pool. So when the water does flood toward the vernal pool, I think it just sort of tops over or laps over or goes over land. And uh, this puddle that's on the downstream side of the driveway culvert will now be enlarged to include that area where the barn is on a little pedestal kind of. If you've looked at that barn, it sits up on a little platform of earth. When that is gone, there'll be more room for water. And so just my quick read of the situation is there's not more water coming through. So there's not gonna be more in the pool but on its way to the pool, it will occupy somewhat different space. I don't know if Paul would agree on, with that or not. No, I, I, I totally agree with you. That's a good right. assessment, Tom. Yeah, that's just how I look at it. And yeah. Yeah, I am pleased that this culvert is gonna have a space like a natural stream with a natural stream bed. So there will be a little more connectivity than there is now. Um, all right, one, one of the questions that has come up in the past, and I'm sure it's gonna come up again tonight, is, uh, you know, the, the origin of the um, drainage pipes that seem to emanate from the Bacardi property. 
and and nobody seems to know. And and I, I think Gene had asked me to uh, check with the with the town engineer, which I did, and, and she indicated that yeah, yes, they can be scoped. You know, you can put a TV camera up there, but it's just going to go back, um, and it may come to a T. Uh, there's sort of a presumption that it probably originates uh, on the old farm property and probably still on the Bugatti property. We don't know that. So the real question is, as Gene has posed a couple of times, is that, well, what if, what if extra water comes? Am I correct, uh, and I'll, I'll ask Paul first, that the water is going to come from the same watershed Okay. Yeah. I, overland, or if it goes through a drain pipe, is, I have a really good graphic. What's that? You want, you want me to call the screen up, Tom? You got your share screen. Okay. I've got a really good. I thought we might talk about this, John. So I have a, a good graphic for what exactly you're talking about. Okay. okay? So this figure here was. Um, anybody have to share one more time? Was submitted with all the drainage calculations. Okay. Our site is this sort of piece here. Very Here's the detail. dog leg. It's it's this site right in here. You can see the detailed topography in here. Yeah. It's ten. It's ten point five acres. Okay. The entire contributing watershed is all of this in blue that goes all the way up to Marine Road. This entire area is thirty five point seven acres. Okay. And these little red arrows represent the flow path of the what we heard. I heard discussion about the time of concentration in one of the, the turf fields this morning. You calculate the time of concentration by what's the longest route of water so that, you know, a water drop that lands right here ultimately goes down and flows all the way here, comes down through, and ends up in the vernal pool, okay? A drop of water that lands up in this watershed will do the same thing and it comes down not the east intermittent stream but the west intermittent stream and it ends up in the vernal pool. So all any storm water that falls with this entire 35.7 acre area ends up in the vernal pool. Okay. Whether or not it goes through the drain pipe or overland or groundwater. Yes. Okay. Yes. So this OSE area, all of this water ultimately goes down through the eastern intermittent stream under the driveway culvert and into the vernal pool. Anything in OSW comes down this way, it goes down the western intermittent stream and it ends up in the vernal pool all of the water ends up in the vernal pool. If you look at some of these drainage structures here, I don't think they're doing anything, but even if they are, water flows downhill and it's still going to end up in the vernal pool and we've already accounted for all of the water. All right, well, two related questions. One is the folks on Spafford Road, and I've seen uh, some concerns raised by the neighbors saying, oh, we're afraid of water in our basement. Am I correct that the two watersheds that you're showing here are essentially directing water away from them? Is that is that correct or is that incorrect? Spafford Road, water doesn't cross Spafford Road because there are, it's curved and there are drainage structures which go to the other side. 
when I did this, and I did this for the purposes of disturbing the flood zone, I actually said, you know what, I think some of that curbing isn't in great shape and, and ran it right down the middle of Spafford Road. Highland so, Street. So there's that's Highland. That's Highland. That's Highland. I'm sorry, you're right. Highland Street. I'm sorry, I'm, my bad. Okay, so there, this is curved, but the curbing isn't in great shape. So some of the water, the road is frowned. There are drainage structures in there. The drainage structures all continue off to the north, and um, so they don't come in here. So that that um, you know, this watershed is is bounded by Highland Street. All right, now that that takes care of. I mean, you you responded appropriately, I think, to my question about surface water. But what what about this uh, mounding issue? Can can water be pushed from one watershed into another? Well, we did it. We had the, I don't know if you saw the ransom environmental, we hired a hydrogeologist to look at this. And um, uh, they came out there, they looked at, they looked at the elevations. Um, actually, the way the stormwater model works now is the water elevations in the eastern intermittent stream with a box culvert for any given storm event will be lower. Um, these um, um, the elevation down in here and even the, the uh, peak flood elevations for a 100-year storm is well below the uh, surface grades on, on Spafford Road and the opposite side of Highland Street. You know, we didn't go on the property and measure it, uh, but it would certainly appear that we're below what would be the basement elevations. Um, and, uh, you know, there are very poorly drained soils and Ransom Environmental came to reach the conclusion that most likely the water problems there are just due to uh, older foundations that are prone to leak when set in uh, poorly drained soil and that the, the peak waters on this thing are gonna be below all of that and that this project is not going to adversely impact basement flooding concerns for abutters to the east. Okay, I think that report has been submitted. That's the quick synopsis of it. It, it, it has, and I, I actually yeah. have that one. I've got the uh, Rimmer Environmental Consulting in my hand as well, but rather yep. than ask you anything about that, I'll wait for the, um, uh, I guess, Council for the Wells Family Revocable Trust, uh, and, and I presume Ms. Picardi as well, may yep. have some questions or wish to make comments. Uh, so I, I, I don't want to get ahead of that. Okay. Um, all right. Uh, Commissioners, uh, any so are, we, are, we, are we all set on the, have I clarified the drainage structures? You did for me. Others okay. might have a question. Uh, all right. So again, just one more time, you know, all of the water goes to the vernal pool, not only from our site, but from everywhere in the entire watershed up above it. Okay. Um, whether some of it is or was being conveyed by some of those structures, we've accounted for it anyway. We are also willing to go one step further, and the only one that we're proposing to alter in any way, because the rest of them are all beyond the limit of work, is the one here by the, the old house that we're putting the box culvert over. We can build the box culvert over it, and if it felt that those structures are important, we can leave them in place. I, it was, it was, it's, you know, my opinion, you know, as, as the designer on this, that it makes more sense to take it out. I mean, it's just a, a decayed structure and you know i i thought it would better have the natural stream without that structure in the middle of it but if it's deemed to be important it can stay all right okay thanks paul i i, I do see hands raised but I'd, I'd like to ask for commissioner questions or comments first and then we'll get to those with a hand raised 
Commissioners, any uh, questions, comments? Uh, hearing none, I'm just looking at my screen at the top. I see Doug, Doug Henry. Yes, can, can you hear me now? Yes, sir, we can. Okay, um, I just had two two points to make. One, I, re I also received the hydrology report that was submitted. Um, Ned circulated that to the entire neighborhood. And I just did not find that a compelling study to address the mounding issue. Um, I think that Paul's done a very good job of dealing with surface water and the runoff, which is really the one of the major concerns the planning board also has, but I don't think there's been sufficient studies done on the potential for mounding. And I would suggest that since you're putting a very large site into an area that's currently wooded, you're gonna excavate soil, put a 72,000 square foot um, building in, the part of the building is going to be um, below grade to keep it lower, um, that could result in mounding. And I would encourage the commission, particularly under the local bylaw where they have the authority to consider getting third-party review of the hydrology issues on the site. Um, the TetraTech reports, which were a planning board issue, deal with groundwater, which is their area of expertise, but TetraTech are not hydrologists, so I think hydrology is very important. The second point, which is related to this, has to do with the area on the other side of the new box culvert on 107 Highland, where um, that's going to be um, excavated and used as storage, but that is also under the construction management plan, an area where they're planning to park construction vehicles as part of the construction. And I'm not sure that's a very good um, place to put construction vehicles, particularly given its um, location near the vernal pool. And, you know, the, the construction management plan requires the road to be built and certain drainage um, protections put in to deal with runoff from the road. But I don't think you want to have parking in an area where the wetland storage is going to be used in the future. So I think that's inconsistent with that use for the property. So that's just the two points I make. I think hydrology is very important to study. And I think the commission should look at whether that parking area, which is where we have been parking on site visits, is appropriate for um, construction parking during the construction of this facility, if it is approved. That's all for me, thanks. Uh, th thanks, Doug. Yeah. Um, it, it, can I ask a, a, a question, a follow-up on yours, and it, it may go to, I guess it goes to Paul, but I, I did read the, there's a sequence uh, construction plan sequence, and it might have been presented to the planning board as opposed to us currently. But I understood that the road in the parking area would go in first. Um, and I, I'm also concerned with uh, the, the staging area for the equipment would be close to, uh, well, it'd be close to the vernal pool, but it would be also be close to the area being excavated 
downstream of the driveway and downstream of the box culvert. Can, can Paul, can you show me where that uh, this is? No, sir. Um, Ned is... I just started to do something and I'm gonna undo it and give it to you, Paul. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not the best person to walk through mm -hmm. the logistics plan here. Yeah, I think that would be um, uh, Dave Griffin from Erlen Construction. Dave, are you there? I am here. Um, I'm just following up on uh, Doug's point there as to where the equipment uh, is going to be staged from. And my memory is it's essentially where the old house was. The, the intent of that area is to park uh, vehicles, the, the workers, uh, and possibly some storage of materials. It is not to store any of the uh, site equipment. Uh, the site equipment based on what I'm looking at, initially we would put them outside of the 100 foot buffer zone in that area as the site is being developed each night. Uh, as we get further along, we wanna move them up to the parking area. Um, our proposal is to asphalt it and use a pig absorbent, absorbent sock uh, for oils, uh, fuel, anything that could potentially spill. Right, and Doug. I don't know if 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 you can respond, but that I think that was your issue, and, and it's a it's a legitimate issue because we don't want a staging area if it's too close to the fernal pool. And when I say too close, we do have a regulation uh, that equipment shall not be refueled or stored overnight within a hundred feet of of the resource area. But it looks just, like I'm that just... can be done, and it might be because of the sequencing of how the road and the parking area goes in. Well, if, if, if the road is built and then there is a, and the back parking area is built and you can park back there, that's one issue. But if you're parking cars on a daily basis for 18 months in an area that is within the buffer zone where that old house is and the barn and is an area that's going to then become wetland storage. Um, and I, I guess if you build the road and you put that box culvert in first, how do you park in that area? going forward won't that be flooded at that point in time you know i think if you if you build the road which is the first base of their plan you have to put that new box culvert in that tom has suggested and then i think the area where they're trying to park has to be storage at that point in time All right can you go to the site utilization plan Stop like sharing. Stop. No, it's just one tab to the left, Ned, I think. Yeah. Uh, up at the top. There we go. You see that? Yes. New plan? Okay. Yeah. So this this doesn't indicate it, but the intent is to protect the area um, where we're parking. Um, silt fence, hay bales, uh, or a pig type sock, whatever's required, so we don't have any problems. Uh, there will be no equipment refueled in that area, um, period, end of story. Uh, storage would be limited to uh, a container or two um, initially. Uh, once we get the building going, everything will be going to the building, in the building, um, 
and as as, as needed. Um, the intent is uh, to develop that road going in. And then if you can see right to the right hand side, once you get past the gate, use that side of the road to get to that little parking area. Yeah, but I, I guess my question is, if you look at your other plan you submitted, the site development plan, your section mm -hmm. A entrance road you're building first yeah. has a new 24 inch box culvert. And based on Paul's description, the area where you're gonna park is gonna be storage. So I think the water's gonna start to flow into that area yeah. initially. So the, fir the first thing that happens is we're gonna go in, set up the fencing, the hay bale, silk fence. We're gonna protect the site um, and from anything leaching out into those areas. Um, the second thing would be to go in and clear and grub, cut, clear and grub. Um, so once that's done, then we'll start developing the road going in. Um, it, it, we can't just build the road, unfortunately. Um, but once the, once that road, once the first phase of that road is built, doesn't that parking area, that's where the old house is, become unusable because the box culvert is then going to flood that area? Based on Paul's description of how this is going to work hydrologically? Yeah, I can't. Well, the, no, the, the, the box culvert isn't going to flood that area. We, it becomes available to flood storage um, after it gets excavated out. Um, but just the presence of the box culvert isn't going to immediately flood that area. Um, water will tend to flow in that direction more than it does now. Um, but, you know, I mean, I think there's a sequencing here on, you know, when that gets excavated. You know, maybe it, it doesn't happen initially to provide some some construction staging or, or employee parking during the early phase of the project. I I, I, I don't know. Uh, that that's fair. That's fair to say that that area would get developed later, um, so we can use it initially for storage and some parking. All right, but I, Doug, I think you've identified uh, an issue, but it, it perhaps can be resolved through sequencing. Mm -hmm. If 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 that's if it's correct that that when that box covers installed it doesn't impact that area and make it wetter because I think that's going to then change the dynamics of that area as far as characterization. So right, um, but that area is is high and elevated until such time as it gets lowered. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So so that's that's one point, and I guess the other point is just having vehicles parked in that area if it's going to be for the entire construction project um where that's not a paved area is that a you know what prote additional protections can be put in there to pre prevent any kind of you know oil drippings from the, the cars and vehicles going into the groundwater there so because it's, it's not paved just a as you've been down there it's just gravel right um if need be we can pave it if it helps we can put a binder coat down um, there are other containment systems that can be done that are more intrusive excavating putting a barrier in um but that's all going to have to get removed at some point as well um that's kind of why in the back side um my opinion is putting the asphalt down and protecting the perimeter of it uh gives you more protection all right uh, thank you so that's a you know, sort of a means and methods issue yeah. For, plus sequencing of the construction phase. 
Uh, and Steve, I, I can't see you, but uh, that can you just take an extra note on that issue? Because if we get to the point of issuing a order of conditions, uh, that that's an important one. All right, I, I can't see, I, I'm, I'm just looking at a, a screen. I can only see part of the screen. Peter McGlynn, did, did you have uh, anything you wanted to say? Now I can see other hands, but Peter at the time, you were the only one I could see. <laughs> you're, you're on mute. Am I? Peter, you're still on mute. Here we go. I am sorry. Uh, it's been mute for, for like three hours now, so I forgot that I wasn't. Uh, I represent the Wells family located at 179 Highland. Uh, we have retained uh, on behalf of the Wells family, Mary Rimmer. Uh, originally, Mary was going to be unable to join us tonight because when the schedule shifted, uh, she had other commitments, but she is on. I was going to be her stand-in, but I think that the commission will be greatly more enriched if you listen to Mary rather than me. But I just want one particular issue uh, since it's on focus with what Mr. Avery was talking about, and that is this uh, 10 inch pipe that uh, we've discussed. This is a, an issue that has been of some concern to the Wells family, uh, especially after the site visit in early April. Uh, the Wells family uh, commissioned a ground penetrating radar test and that showed anomalies that suggest that this 10-inch pipe may run underground uh, underneath the Bacardi property, underneath the Wells property, and may even end up on property at Highland Lane uh, belonging to the Giuliani family, if that's the correct pronunciation. Mr. Avery says that everything's going to flow into the vernal pool and water runs downhill, so I suspect that at least from a, um, a physics standpoint, he's correct. But how do they know how much water is going to come out of this 10 inch pipe since they don't know where it comes from? Um, we have suggested, and I know that uh, uh, Antonina Wells, prior to our engagement, had suggested some form of dye testing. You may be right, Mr. Chairman, and maybe you know you go in 10 feet and you hit a T and, and that's the end of it, but there just does not seem to be uh, enough evidential material here to come to a conclusion that. Uh, whereas everything goes into the vernal pool, we just don't know what the extent of the water coming out of that 10-inch pipe is. So we've suggested, we recommend that there be uh, additional testing, something that Northbridge has not really identified in any of its reports, um, other than some historical data, to uh, claim uh, that the uh, pipe serves an important purpose, unstated as to what that important purpose is, um, and it's been accounted for in its storm models. Uh, we just don't think that that makes any sense. How can you account for something that you don't know uh, the extent of? Uh, so we would request that something be, in that regard be considered some testing to ascertain where that uh, 10 inch pipe begins and to the extent that uh, it's possible to determine how much water is flowing in there, especially at, uh, during uh, the wet season. Uh, when we get to other points, I don't want to Get over my ski tips, Mr. Uh, Chairman, but uh, I'm going to turn it over to Mary Rimmer at the appropriate time. All right, but uh, Peter, and maybe Mary would be better at answering it, but um, I, I sometimes tend to oversimplify things, but uh, the reason I asked Paul the question that I did about the watershed was that it's not if 
if all the water in the watershed is ending up at the bottom of where the vernal pool is, what difference does it make if it's if it's transported by uh, overland sheet flow or a drain pipe or uh, groundwater? I mean, we're not we're not taking water from another watershed unless there's a pump. But I I don't think anybody's suggesting somebody's pumping it uphill to go downhill. So that I would like to turn over uh, if this is the appropriate time, uh, John, to to Mary to have her address that. Perfect. Thank you, uh, Mary. Sure. Um, thanks very much. I appreciate it. And uh, I, I was not able to be at the site visit and I understand the wetland boundaries have already been resolved and I do I have submitted a report to you that sounds like you have that so I appreciate that um, that you've sounds like you've read that. Um, it, to, to jump right into the vernal pool question there, um, you know, vernal pool hydrology is can, can be very sensitive and so it, it does make a difference whether it's supported by base flow, which is groundwater elevations, which is subject to different fluctuations than um, surface flow. Um, and so, it, you know, a water budget typically would be required to make sure there's not an impact, you're not causing um, this vernal pool to be entirely reliant on a groundwater that might drop um, well below the surface and not allow it to pond um, during the time of year where these Vernal pool species are breeding. Um, I did note in the drainage, um, the pre and post drainage watershed um, maps that that Paul had presented, that there is a slight change in the um, catchment area contributing to the pool, where water is being rooted through the parking lot and into the um, infiltration basin, not directly to the right. Currently, that the acre, a little more than an acre, goes directly towards the pool is being rerouted and infiltrated in. And, and sent into the ground as well. So on both sides of the site, you're having groundwater that would typically um, be surface flow contributing to that vernal pool. Um, it, it, you know, it's, it's, it's reaching there in a different manner that may affect the longevity of that pool. And what is important is in the springtime that the pool retains water for long enough during the season to allow obligate vernal pool species to metamorphose so that they can then walk out of the pool and yeah, as they become adult salamanders or adult frogs. Um, and if you shorten that time period, they will die. They don't make it into full adulthood. So maintaining the hydrology of the pool is important. And, and you know, maybe a water budget analysis for the pool is um, something that can be considered. Um, as far as the the culverts at the uh, the new box culvert at the entrance it's generally a good thing for you know to open up sub substandard culverts and allow uh, wildlife crossings and the mass dep stormwater crossings uh, guidelines encourage that but there's a caveat it's not always a good thing and you need to look at the upstream and downstream wetland resources and make sure that you're not excessively draining wetlands on the upstream side by opening up culverts or excessively flooding downstream um, properties or wetlands and that you're not altering the stream dynamics the stream um, configuration of the, of the actual the stream channel so that information hasn't been provided it's recommended in the stream crossing guidance that that information be provided the, the Wells family is particularly concerned with flooding impacts and they're being upstream. It's 
you know, opening up that culvert tends to be a good thing for their property, as long as the additional volume of water that's being put onto this, into this, into the ground doesn't cause flooding downstream that backs up into their property. So um, I think a, a more detailed hydrologic analysis, especially with respect to groundwater is important for this site because of the way they're managing the water on the site um, and trying to meet the stormwater standards by pushing everything into the ground. Um, so I, you know, I know it's been mentioned earlier that um, perhaps a peer review or additional additional um, hydrologic assessment be provided beyond the stormwater management guidelines. The Tetratech did do the stormwater management review for the planning board, um, but they perhaps didn't specifically look at vernal pool impacts in terms of changing either the ways of contribution and the um, contributing watershed areas and the changes in the in the overall I know it's it's relatively small it's like an acre and a half out of 35 acres that eventually makes its way to the vernal pool that's being diverted um, well it's, but it's actually a good portion of both the pre-construction watersheds that's being diverted um, not just the western side that goes through the parking lot so <laughs> That's a kind of a mouthful, and I don't know if you have you want to talk about that before I go on to some of the other points that well, I wanted to raise. I, I do have a question, and I, I think you touched on it in terms of the hydrological analysis, but um, I know we've heard from some folks on Stafford Road saying that their basements you know, get flooded periodically. That seems to me, from my view, as a different watershed. That is, the water's flowing in a different way. It's the other side of Highland Street. Right. But I'm asking um, if if the drainage pipes are going in a different direction and the sheet flow is going in a different direction, uh, should we be concerned with mounding that it is essentially going to go over, go over the top of or underneath Highland Street and go into a different watershed? I think is that, is that possible, or is literally all the water going downhill towards the vernal pool and towards? Well, we don't really know where the groundwater is going because it isn't mapped. And as far as I know, there haven't been monitoring wells or anything put in. But that some of that information would be needed in order to map, you know, groundwater flow, and see what, um, what the volume of water that they're infiltrating would, it would do. I mean, it could change the characteristics of the wetlands down gradient as well. Um, by right, I know that converting I... the vegetation, you know, into a different type of vegetation if they're, if they're um, receiving additional flow. But I don't know about hopping over that. I mean, I'm not a hydrologist, so I don't know whether or not it can hop over, you know, the, you know, the drainage divide you're talking about is a surface water divide, which doesn't exist likely underground. Okay. And, and that was my question. So yeah. I think, I think you've answered it. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and a couple other comments just um, having to do with the one-year bylaw. You know, there's a considerable amount of work that's proposed in the 25-foot no-disturb zone, and the, your bylaw requires waivers for that um, work. I know that there, there was a general request for uh, a waiver in some of the more recent correspondence, but there isn't any description of the total the specific areas where waivers are required, um, the square footages, what the purpose is for each waiver, for each location where you're intruding into the 25 foot no disturb zone, 
there's obviously there's impact for the crossings, but there's also impact for um, temporary construction related impacts in the 25 foot no disturb. And it hasn't been demonstrated why that work can be, why that work can't be done without direct impact to the 25 foot no disturb during construction. So I would just recommend that the commission require a more detailed analysis of the waiver requests um, that are needed for this project. Um, there's some information that was missing in terms of the replication area and the replication grading and how that specifically how that grading is going to relate to the compensatory flood storage area that's being proposed right next to it and an increased culvert size, which is going to potentially change the channel configuration downstream. So there's a lot happening in a pretty small area and a lot of grading and it I don't think that that's been completely fleshed out yet. Um, I had some comments about the, the plantings, and I think that's easily accommodated. But there's a there are very few trees proposed in the wetland replication area, uh, and perhaps perhaps that's because there weren't a lot of trees in the impact area. But given the nature of the project and the overall benefit of having trees, you know, I would think that additional plantings in the replication area should be um, should be proposed and there's no specific restoration plan for what how this compensatory flood storage area would be treated upon completion what, what would it be seeded what it would what would it be seeded with would there be any other plantings how would it be maintained um, those kind of things haven't been fully addressed either um, I had a comment about what the wildlife habitat evaluation that was provided because the applicant exceeds the bank thresholds, um, which triggers a wildlife habitat evaluation. So 90 feet of 90 linear feet of bank is proposed to be altered, which the trigger is 50 linear feet or 10% of the total bank on the site. But they're also only 15 square feet under the bordering land subject to flooding trigger. So there may also be habitat evaluation trigger for that um, resource. And all that was provided was really just the appendix A, which is a check checklist. It just says no, no habitat features, but there wasn't any further detail. There's no description of the habitat or photos or any any further analysis on the habitat evaluation. So I would recommend that that also be provided. Thank you, Mary. Can I respond to one of your questions by redirecting to Paul? your comments about uh, the 25 foot non-disturbance zone. And traditionally we distinguish between a limited project, uh, for, you know, crossing a, a, a wetland or a stream to, to get to the upland project. Um, we distinguish between that and then putting the project within 25 feet of our resource area. Um, Paul, can you, can you show us where uh, Mary's talking about uh, yeah. with, with an overhead, like a foot. Well, I, I could. There was a graphic that I had at the first meeting that very clearly demonstrated how the route we were taking was the one with minimal impacts. Okay. I, I If you wanted to give me a few minutes and go on to something else, I could see if I could find it and bring it up again. But, you know, when we first introduced this project, we had a specific figure up there that color-coded and everything and going, this is the way, you know, we maximized the use of the driveway. Originally it was curved. We straightened it. I would think the curve is aesthetically a better design, but we straightened it because that minimized the impacts better. Um, so 
you know, if you if you give me a minute, I can browse around and see if I can find that. If you want to go on to something yeah. else and come back, that that's fine. I, I'd like to do that because I do recall okay. a discussion and on the limited project side of this, uh, your alternative you did have an alternatives analysis, which yeah. is required, uh, and that's appropriate. But I I thought that Mary had suggested that there were other areas where the building itself. The roadway construction, yeah, parts of the roadway construction are within, uh, or the temporary impacts, so that your erosion control barrier is within the 25-foot no-disturb zone in some areas um, in order to accomplish to the construction, and then, but the permanent structures are outside of the 25-foot. So oh, there's okay. All temporary right. I, I misunderstood, Mary. construction-related oh. impacts in addition to the, you know, the, the limited project crossings, which I think can also require a waiver, but I know that they fall under a different category, at least under the state wetland protection act, but your, your bylaw doesn't have any exception for limited projects. And so they probably need waivers for those as well. Understood. I appreciate that comment. All right. Thanks. Um, other questions or comments at this stage, or we can move on. I, I know there's a hand raised on the, oh, there you are. Thanks Paul. Paul, is that your screen share? Yeah, this is the graphic I was talking about. Yes, thank you. Okay, so the pink areas here are the green is the wetland, the pink is the are the various non-disturbs, and I lumped the 25 foot BVW with the 100 foot for the Vernapool. So basically, everything that's green is is resource area. Everything that's pink is the non-disturbance zone. So if you look at where we came in, we did not go through the wetland. You know, the wetlands impacts are minimized just in this, you know, one particular area here. We utilized the existing driveway alignment as best we could. And then, you know, this area here, um, you know, I mean, arguably we might have been able to save a few feet, but it doesn't work from a traffic standpoint. Um, so, you know, where we are crossing right here is, is among the narrower areas where we could have... Um, you know, feasibly cross the, the intermittent stream on the west. Okay, and we we presented this at the at the first hearing. Yes, no, I I, I recall it. Yeah, I recall it. I okay. think your your grading plan shows the um the areas I'm talking about that are temporary disturbances. Yeah, no, there are, there are, there are some likely to be some temporary disturbances, and and um in our response to uh, Mary's letter, we you know can certainly clarify that you know areas which are temporarily disturbed will be restored and get some clarification on that. We don't have a problem with that. All right, un understood. Okay. Okay. Good point, right. Mary. Thank you, and, and a good response, Paul. Um, I know there's a um, um, an iPhone with a hand raised, but I don't know who it is. Anybody there on, on the phone? Hi, it's Gene Irwin. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Go ahead, Gene. Hi. I have a couple of questions. Is it possible someone can bring up the first, uh, one of the first conceptuals of the uh, development showing like the six or seven rain gardens and stuff that were originally proposed to town meeting? I... I'm not sure to what you're referring. Paul, do you know? The, well, the I, don't like you. I, I don't recognize. I, 
I would have to take a few minutes to sort of rummage through. I'm not sure what that is, and that isn't the plan that was submitted for the notice of intent anyway. So, no, I, I agree. Gene, is there is there some other way well, you could bring well, up the well, issue well, or frame the issue? Well, I, I, I'll try to do it verbally. If you take the 10 inch pipe that goes through the Wells property and it goes through the Bacardi property, um, obviously the applicant doesn't control the pipe while it's on the other properties. We all agreed on that. So if the Bacardi's were to turn that pipe in a different direction, several rain gardens that are already in the conceptuals may be virtually useless. So then maybe you have to dig seven more rain gardens. And I was saying that the place could look like a Beirut battlefield with just, okay, you know, all the wells all to the pipe. Um, the applicant, as I said previously, is a servient um, landowner. And the dominant landowners are above them and control that water. Now I've seen that water come through that pipe. It flows like crazy during a good storm. And we don't know where it comes from and we don't know if anyone's gonna ever add to it. So again, you have velocity issues, I would think, with the water um, going forward. And so I think that's something that still needs to be investigated. Also, when we did the site walk behind the house at 107, one of the, um, I don't know if it was Wendy or one of the Conservation Commission people said, what if that drain was filled with cement or sand? I contend that the entire hill between the house at 107 and Bacardi's would all be soaking wet. That you could never build anything there because I believe that drainage system on site that has never been diagnosed is working perfectly. And I say it, it, it drains the land um, for an agricultural use that's no longer uh, um, being considered. So as I say, it, instead of just scoping the pipe up through Bacardi's yard and Wells yard, I think the existing drain <clears throat> should be evaluated as to how well it's working because the only dry land that exists over there is above the drain that's behind 107. Now, if I may change topics for a second, under the rules of ways of the town of Milton, um, I brought up the planning board last meeting, new subdivisions aren't allowed sewage ejectors. And from day one, we said they didn't have the infrastructure to do this project. And I think th th there are still several issues there as to swept path analysis that the first responders can get in and that sort of thing. We've never seen it. But the, the law of Milton is um, they have to have a septic system there. If Mr. they can't Chair, this tie- This is not a subdivision. Subdivision, well, I, that, sounds like a, that sounds like a planning board issue, Gene. Correct. Okay. And that would be a pump station, not an injector pump. Okay, I'll, I'll leave it for the planning board if that's their domain. All right, thank, thanks, Gene. Okay, Dan thank Hill, you. Do, you, do you have a uh, comment, Dan? 
Yes, uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman, uh, members of the commission. My name is Dan Hill. I'm a land use attorney, and I represent uh, the neighbors on Spafford Road. Um, this afternoon, I just want to make sure you all received uh, my letter, uh, as well as uh, a letter from Scott Horsley. Uh, he's a hydrologist. He's actually here tonight, and that was, I think, a seven-page letter, raising some initial hydrogeological concerns that we have with, with the project. Um, so, Dan, Dan yeah. I'm getting a bit of an echo. Do you have a phone on next to your computer? I don't. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure, sure out of control for that. that. Okay. Is it, is is it still an echo? It, it is, but if you speak slowly, we can hear you distinctly. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry, sorry about that. that. Um, well, well, let me be brief then, and I'll pass the baton to Scott. Um, I, I, I don't want to repeat uh, anything that's been said. I, I just want to echo what um, Doug Henry mentioned about mounding. I think that's a major issue in this project. Um, the, the, the project's stormwater model is relying on uh, infiltration rates that are set forth in the textbook that was published 40 years ago, <laughs> rather than doing on-site permeability testing. Um, and that's something that I know has come up in the past couple projects that this commission has reviewed with very high water tables and intense land use development. And in fact, this was raised this morning at the site visit for the uh, Canton Ave uh, 40B project. Uh, so we strongly recommend that the commission require the on-site permeability testing to establish the permeability and hydraulic conductivity rates, not just rely on that textbook rate. Um, this uh, river is absolutely correct about the impacts on the vernal pool. I'm not going to uh, repeat those. Uh, we would ask the commission require the applicant to provide a water budget analysis. Uh, this is something the commission is completely authorized to do to require uh, under both the bylaw and the state act. Um, this is a major buffer zone project. Um, I don't have to tell you this. Uh, buffer zones, according to the Mass Association of Conservation Commissions, Commissioners, uh, play a very significant role, not only in habitat protection, which Ms. Rimmer addressed, but also water quality. Um, and we have a site here with very steep slopes, uh, including retaining walls, very close to the wetland boundary. When you have steep slopes and retaining walls close to the wetland boundary, the buffer zone loses its water quality protection function. Um, it, it loses its ability to attenuate the, the rate of flow and the quality, the, the screening uh, function uh, that, that these buffer zones provide. So there really needs to be very careful analysis of the impacts in the buffer zone, not just your 25-node disturbed zone, but the 100-foot zone as well. Um, I, would want, I also want to echo the, the comments about peer review. Um, we, we think that this project needs a, uh, a good hydrogeological assessment uh, and a, a peer reviewer to review the developer's assessment. Um, I just received uh, the so-called ransom report um, that uh, apparently was filed a few weeks ago. I didn't, I, I didn't see it until just now. That report, I, I think, just addresses off-site hydrological impacts, not on-site impacts. Um, so, so what, what, what we, we really need to see here is, is the developer doing a hydrogeological study on its own site to address the mounting issues that Doug Henry raised and the issues that Scott has raised in this letter. So if I could, Mr. Kiernan, just pass this over to Scott, uh, and he can just summarize, uh, again, his, his letter that was filed today. Did, did you receive that letter, by the way? I, I have not. Uh, I have not read it. Uh, I've been away from my computer, so it, it may be sitting there, but I haven't read it. 
Okay. Scott, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, Thanks, Mr. Chairman. I'll, Mr. Chairman, I'll be brief. I know the, the, the hour is late and a lot has already been said. And I, I want to really echo a lot of Mary Rimmer's comments. She, uh, her suggestion for the need for a hydrologic budget is essentially my recommendation as well. I just want to point out three uh, concerns related to that. And again, some of these have been raised, so I don't want to repeat, but one of the unique things about the site is the existence of this network of drainage pipes, which has been discussed both by the applicant as well as the commission. Those drainage pipes are clearly already impacting the hydrology on the site. It appears as though, and I've referenced in my letter and footnoted uh, the applicant suggesting that this may have been installed to drain the water levels down for agricultural purposes. Uh, so my first comment is during construction of the site, if those drainage pipes are modified or removed, uh, that alone is probably going to change the hydrology and probably raise water levels and, and compromise uh, depths to groundwater, which of course is one of the performance standards for the so-called infiltration structures that is uh, proposed by the applicant. Uh, the second comment is the fact that the, uh, and again, I'm referencing the applicant's numbers here, the amount of impervious surface on this property is going to substantially increase from 11,000 square feet up to in excess of 93,000 square feet, a net increase of 82,000 square feet or 740%. Uh, I know the commission is well aware impervious surface means more surface, more, more runoff. And in most of the projects we're reviewing in Milton, that means more infiltration to the groundwater. So this is going to exacerbate the first comment that I mentioned. If you remove the drainage pipes that are currently draining the groundwater from the site, and then you add impervious surface and infiltrate it, uh, you've got a twofer. You've got two uh, things that are occurring on top of each other going to graze groundwater levels. I don't believe that either of those have been incorporated into uh, the estimated seasonal high groundwater computations, which are going to be very different post-construction than they are pre-development. And the third comment is once you install these infiltration systems and as the stormwater standards require, we need to do groundwater mounting analysis, or I should say we, the applicant needs to do that. Uh, this third comment is on top of number one and two. So once you drain the, once you remove or modify the drainage pipes, you raise the water level, increase impervious surface, you have annual recharge, that raises the groundwater levels. You've got two raises, those need to be quantified. And then, then, and only then after that, you assess the impacts of the so-called design storms, the 10 year, 25 and 100 years. So my recommendation is that these three steps, all three, not two, but all three of them be incorporated into the hydrologic analysis that I think Mary is suggesting uh, this is a complicated site. It's a challenging site. Uh, the applicant's trying to do a lot here um, on, a, on a very challenging site. Uh, and uh, that may be well, all well and good, but the analysis needs to be done to make sure that we're meeting all the standards. And I'll leave it at that, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Mr. Chair, I can perhaps allay my friend Scott's concerns right off the bat. We do not intend to touch those pipes. They're completely outside the limit of work no change to the hydraulic issues associated with the water flowing through those pipes. 
All right, thanks. Scott, can I ask you a, a question? And I, I, I confess that oftentimes I oversimplify things, but my question is on mounding. And that, that is a, a topic of discussion in the area, um, you know, with, with two other projects going up nearby. You, you've heard the question and, and uh, discussion before about uh, the Highland Street being actually the, the break point between two different watersheds. Um, I know the drainage is going away from Spafford Road. I know the sheet flow is going away from uh, Spafford Road. Is there any way that mounding could kind of <laughs> overtop the, the break point between the two watersheds? Uh, a great question, uh, Mr. Chairman. And I think Mary said it well again. Uh, surface watershed does not dictate groundwater flow. And you say overtop, I would I would suggest the term is under underflow <laughs> because we're talking about groundwater and the groundwater divide is different than a surface water divide. Uh, it's com uh, commonly uh, uh, analysts assume they're the same, but they're not. So absolutely, absolutely. Groundwater mounding effects will go across surface watershed divides. Um, uh, I don't know, 90% of the time to 100% of the time, uh, very frequently. So it's, it's uh, you're absolutely right. Um, the water surface watershed divide should not be considered to be dictating groundwater divides and they need to be evaluated independently. And how would you do that? Would a monitoring well? Well, uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Monitoring wells will document existing conditions and then you can analyze post-development conditions if you continue to do that. But the best way to do it is, as we've seen in other projects, some sort of a groundwater model. Uh, the simple model is the Hantwich model, which we've talked about in many projects before the town. And as long as you're comfortable making a lot of very simplifying assumptions, and if you have a site that is simple, Hantwich might work. Um, I'm not sure anybody here, including the applicant, might suggest it's a simple site. So I'm gonna go with the applicant here. This is a complex site. They've documented that in their work. So you, you need a numerical model to evaluate that. And uh, th these models are readily available. They're used all the time. And that's the best way to evaluate the impacts. Thank you. Thanks. Bart, I see your hand up. Oh, okay. uh, th thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Yeah, I just was, uh, I had my hand up, I think earlier I took it down and I meant to leave it up, but I think Scott probably answered the question, but I just wanted to reiterate, reiterate the point about the groundwater, because if you look at the map that, that I think either Paul or Ned were showing earlier, you know, a huge chunk of the wetland is right up along Highland. And, you know, that area is, you know, standing water for a lot of the year. Um, and, you know, you have the road there and then, you know, the, the idea that all the water drains only north and, and, and then no groundwater impacts bleed east when, you know, uh, you know, you have maybe only a couple of feet below of dense grade below that asphalt is, is you know, I think we, as Scott said, we have to, we have to really appreciate the fact that that water is going to go in all, you know, is going to go east, it's going to go north. And, and Spafford is, is about 75, 80 feet above sea level where it meets Reedsdale at the bottom of the hill. This site is 130, 140 feet uh, above sea level if you look at the elevation. So, you know, it's the downhill is in both directions, east and north. So the groundwater is, is just absolutely has to be going. It, it, you know, it's not going to nicely and neatly follow um, north along Highland, and Highland's going to block. Um, you know, surface water, I think most of us understand, is not going to go over the road in, in all likelihood. 
but it's that groundwater where we've seen, you know, the test pits are only two feet below below um, below ground before they hit water in the supposed non-wetland. In the wetland area, there's surface water that's just standing there for much of the year. So, you know, we have this incredibly high water table. So that, that, that I think that, you know, just like to reiterate that point. So thank you very much. Thank you. Um, Paul, do you have a hand back up? No? No, it is, it is, it is. Okay. So uh, just three quick things. One, I'd like to, you know, remind everybody what I mentioned earlier. I mean, we're hearing now that groundwater is gonna absolutely jump over um, Highland Street. Um, with the box culvert in there, the surface waters will be lower. So I am not a hydrologist. I'm not a hydrogeologist. I'm not gonna pretend to be one um, if, if groundwater study is needed here it's not what i do but just i think the essence of the ransom report is is that we're actually lowering surface waters there so um i just think that groundwater jumping impacts jumping the other side of highland street just seems like a stretch to me that's all so um the also i'd like to point out that um bard's mentioned a couple times groundwater that we never encountered any groundwater in our test pits what we encountered was estimated seasonal high groundwater those are different things so we weren't encountering water we were just cutting the redoxymorphic features that indicate the groundwater can be that high at certain times of year so i just want to you know clarify that particular difference here and then the final thing is on the pipe that the groundwater um it is beyond the scope of work as ned pointed out but it's also hydraulically upgrading of the work so that um, the work we're doing here is not going to affect that pipe. So that's it. Thank you. Commission members, questions, comments? John, I would, uh, I'm sorry. I would just say with respect to groundwater mounting analysis, I know that that was an issue over at 648 Campton Avenue. Um, big difference between that project and this project is that our um, infiltration systems are more than four feet separated from estimated season high groundwater. That's the, that's the point at which the regulations kick in and require groundwater mounting analysis. The 648 Canton Avenue project, the groundwater was only two feet uh, below the, um, the bottom of infiltration basins. And so I think that the commission was right in that case to request uh, ground sophisticated groundwater mounting analysis. I don't think that's necessary here. Um, I would suggest that if the commission is interested in some peer review with respect to this, uh, Tetra Tech, which is under contract already with planning board, has that capacity in-house. There, there are other um, experts other than just their engineers, and they certainly have the capacity to provide that. And I would suggest that if the commission is interested in that type of analysis, that we reach over to the planning board and ask that for a scope uh, from Tetra Tech for that purpose. Um, otherwise, you've got to go through a process to bring on somebody else that takes time. Um, you know, Tetra Tech's already on the project. They know they know the site. I think they have the capacity to do it. Thanks. Thanks, Ned. Uh, commission members, questions, comments, uh, and in particular, uh, response to whether or not we need a, a hydrologist as a consultant. And, and as Ned said, you know, can we utilize uh, Tetra Tech? Um, we've used GZA in the last couple of projects. Um, 
and they seem to have the capacity. I'm just looking for somebody that's, you know, independent and skilled and has the expertise. Um, commission members, uh, I'm just looking to see if there's a consensus here. Do we need a hydrologist? I'm, I'm very interested in that mounting because I, I, I've been listening to the folks from uh, Stafford Road. It, my gut reaction is it's the other side of the divide. It's a different watershed. But uh, I'm, I'm the, the further. I don't, I don't, John, I don't think we need one. Okay. That's my opinion. All right. Hans, are you there? What do you think? I am sorry. I was having connectivity issues. Um, based on the input we received, I, I do think an independent review is warranted. Okay. Arthur? You're, you're on. Uh, um, if it would answer substantive remaining questions, uh, that would be valuable. But if it would not be purposed. So then I would not be inclined to go in that direction. Depends upon what it really has to address. All right, uh, Tom, should I should I ask you or not ask you? Um, I was impressed with what Scott said about the amount of change on the site. And uh, there is a stormwater plan, and there was a Tetra Tech review of that plan, which I think I read. And uh, I thought that was somewhat persuasive because they are experts about stormwater, if I'm correct. And they seem to think that enough infrastructure was being built to accommodate the great increase in stormwater that will, there will be. So if I'm relying on Tetra Tech, I would say we don't need it. But on the other hand, maybe that comment letter doesn't answer all these questions. So I guess I'm torn. Okay, Wendy. Um, I, I'm in agreement with Hans. I would like to see some more um, study be done on this proposal. All right, and Ingrid. Yeah, I'm also in agreement with Hans. I think uh, a review would be warranted. All right, what about using Tetra Tech? They're already familiar with the site. Uh, they're the consultant to the planning board. Uh, can we kind of piggyback? I mean, I'd, I'd like to get the answer to my question, Can the, and I and I appreciate what uh, Scott Horsley just said, that, that there's a difference between the, the break point for surface water uh, and drain pipes, certainly, um, and groundwater. But I think that's a pretty simple question. I think we could kind of piggyback onto the planning board and, and try to utilize Tetradec. But as Ned, I, I do that. I'm, I'm still talking, you know, chapter 44, section 53G. It's on your dime. So I'm completely understood. <laughs> we, don't have any, we don't have any money. <laughs> yeah, understood. Uh, you know, one of the issues you got Tetratech, which is heavily involved now reviewing, we've got additional comments that we've received and obviously we need to continue to respond to. They have the expertise to do this and they ought to be tabbed. Otherwise, you've got to go through a procurement. You got to get somebody under contract. That's going to take time. And we no, think I this agree with that. Would that be satisfactory if we were to piggyback on the, the planning board's uh, peer review person, uh, entity? Not person, but it entity. would be to us. Yes. Okay. Commission members, that may be the, the, 
fastest way to do it. Uh, and Todd, I, I heard what you said. We've got the, we've got the data already, but uh, I, I don't think it hurts to get an extra opinion, uh, particularly in an area in which we're not expert. Well, if, we, if they're going to go that way, we should go with what they already have for the planning board, then make it simple. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, we've got we've got the I've got the report in 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 my hand, but I, I'd like to ask that specific question as to whether or not the mounting analysis is necessary to the extent that this could. I don't know what the word is. It's not overtop. I guess it's <laughs> underflow uh, under Highland and and go into a different watershed. Um, I, th I think that's a that's a fair question. I think the answer is no, but uh, but uh, I defer to a hydrologist and uh, John. And I'd also like to understand if they have the qualifications to look at the water budget question as well. Yes, no, I I, I agree with that on the for the vertical pool. I, I agree, I agree, and that would be the the second area of inquiry. John, I, I agree with Tetratech, and I also agree with Hans. Uh, on his last point. I think that's got to be resolved and we're still uncertain about that. All right, so it looks like we've got a consensus to uh, ask for assistance from Tetratech from the hydrological perspective to bring them on as a consultant under the statute and our regulation, by the way, uh, and uh, ask those two main areas of, of inquiry, which would be one, mounting, particularly as it uh, impacts on Stafford Road folks, uh, and secondly, the uh, water budget for the Vernal Pool. That all makes sense, Peter McGlynn. I see your your hand raised. I'm afraid to open my mouth given the late hour, but would it make sense, Mr. Chairman, for Tetratech to issue a draft report and get it give everybody a very brief comment period before they finalize it and present it? That's typical of of what we would do in at least similar circumstances, at least in litigation matters. So. Just think maybe that's something to allow Tetratech to make any mid-course adjustments before they finalize the report. Well, just to give you a brief brief history, I, I've always railed against the term peer review because the planning board uses peer review, the ZBA uses peer review. We use chapter 44, section 53G, which is our consultant, which I, I contend is different from a peer review, but everybody I, I talk to says, ah, it's peer review. Um, but uh, it's everything they submit to us is public record and nothing is written in stone. Uh, it's always subject to comment at public meetings. Uh, we, we have in the past resisted private meetings between the, the engineering groups and the experts. And we like to get their advice and then put it out in the public uh in the public arena and then discuss it at a public meeting. So that there's no sort of um, back channel discussions going on. I'm not suggesting there's anything bad with that. And that may be part of the peer review process, but our tradition has been to ask them to give us advice to particular questions, share that advice immediately upon receipt and discuss it. And sometimes we send it back for re-review. So we're not stuck. Uh, whether it's a draft or a final, doesn't matter to us. It's an open, ongoing discussion from our perspective. That makes sense, Mr. Chairman. It does. I agree. I concur. Scott, you had a uh, hand up question? I would, Mr. Chairman. I just wanted to comment on um, the peer. I think you made a good distinction, the peer review versus your consultant. I would just remind you on the 648 project, we had a 
Petrotech review for the planning board and GZA for the conservation commission. And I might remind you, they were very different re end result reviews. Uh, both are good firms. I know them very well. I've worked with them over my career many, many times. But I will suggest that the people involved with the peer review from the planning board were a surface water hydrologist driven. In the late hour, they brought on one hydrogeologist to do a very brief review. The GZA review was driven by groundwater hydrogeologists. Uh, I'll leave it at that. If you're looking for a groundwater hydrogeology review, um, I think uh, you can look back at your experience in the other project. Uh, so I would think that there may be some value in considering whether you, to use your terms, Mr. Chairman, you get a peer review or, or your consultant review, and I'll leave it at that. Mr. Chair, I'd like to just comment briefly on that. The, the issue of groundwater was raised at the 11th hour in the 648 Canton Avenue comprehensive permit process. The applicant in that case refused to participate in any groundwater mounting discussion and, and Tetratech was given about a minute and a half to review whatever material that there was before the applicant closed the hearing and refused to go forward. It's a completely different situation when it came to the Conservation Commission because it was a new filing, a new process, and the commission had the power to, opt to require a new consultant review, which you did appropriately. It's a different situation here. We're not at the 11th hour. We're not threatening to close the case, to close the matter. We're here saying it's appropriate to do this work and that Tetratech has the capacity to do it and they ought to be uh, contracted to do it. Thank you. All right. I, I think they're both good points. And, and I think that uh, Tetratech does, well, I'm going to, I don't know a specific person, but I believe they have the capacity to provide hydrogeological um, advice. And I, we're not interested in the surface flow. We've, we've got that data. We're looking at mounting analysis. And I'm presuming that Tetratech has somebody that is expert in that area, you know, a bona fide hydrologist. Um, if I'm wrong, then I, I would prefer to go to a bona fide hydrogeologist. Understood. Or hydrologist. So I, I, my working assumption is they have the personnel and the expertise to provide that which we need. And I think that's the fastest way to do it. I agree, uh, which is why I suggested it. And I think they do have the capacity. I know that they just did it at the, at the at, you know, with five minutes left in the process. Previous. Arthur, did, were you speaking, Arthur? No. Okay, all right. You have three hands, John. Um, I see Dan Hill. Yeah, Mr. Chairman, I, I just wanted to just point out, I mean, you, you, you're right, it will be faster to just just to ask Tetratech to have uh, Pete Dillon in their firm do, review this, but it, I don't think it's that slow to ask GZA to do it as well. And and where Tetratech is involved, Pete Dillon is not involved, and so he would have to get up to speed just like GZA would. And this commission has really good experience working with GZA on two projects within the last year. So I, I, to, to me, GZA is a, a, a superior firm for this this type of assignment, um, just based upon those factors. I just want to just weigh in on that for what it's worth. John, they're not on a contract. GZA is oh, not on a contract. You lose 60 to 90 days associated with that process. And Dan, I think that's right on that one, having gone through this twice in the last year. But I do agree with you. At least 90 days. GZA has got a... a Good reputation, and they, we've done well by them. 
Uh, Nadine, Hannah, I see your hand raised. Hi, uh, thank you, Nadine Hannah, 11 Stafford Road. Um, thank you again, everyone, for all of the contributions tonight. Um, uh, Mr. Hill just touched upon uh, something that I was actually had my hand raised towards, but I think we should perhaps, I would request that we could encourage uh, Mr. Corcoran, Northbridge, and all the parties affiliated to take and seek out the best course of action and not just the fastest. Um, not specific to Tetratech exactly, you know, I would, I would put this to any commission, any board, um, along any step of this process, 60 to 90 days may seem like a long time to this group trying to close out this development, but to the residents of this town, to the abutters, to the neighbors on Stafford Road, such as myself, even being among the farthest down the street on Stafford versus, you know, family like the Wells or the Bacardis who are up higher on Highland. Um, my friend Teresa, who lives up at the, the junction of Highland and Stafford, we're still greatly concerned with so many issues, water being one of the top, traffic being among the top, um, and so on. We could go on all night and I won't. Um, but this fixture, if it is to be approved, ultimately will be here throughout my lifetime, throughout probably my children's lifetime and then some. Um, so 60 to 90 days, if, if that's what it takes to do it the right way, instead of the fastest way, um, I, wouldn't, I would respectfully request um, that that become a requirement, whatever it is applicable to. If it's to an, an additional third party, so be it. If it's to another study, so be it. If it's as simple as doing test pit analysis um, for every season, instead of passing off the level of water as being specific to the date in which it was taken at that time. Um, I do feel a lot of the concerns that we have brought up are being quickly dismissed um, by respectfully Paul and, uh, and Ned. And so, it would serve this, this slice of Milton better um, to have the most thorough process. Thank you. Thanks, Nadine. And uh, uh, just be assured that the commission is not dismissing any, any of your concerns or the neighbor's concerns. Um, but I, I will say this, your comment about you know, getting the best is 100% is with you on that one. And Steve Ivis, uh, let me ask you this. Um, I, I didn't know that Peter Dillon worked for Tetratech. I had no idea. Uh, but uh, Steve, wasn't Peter Dillon one of the ones that was originally recommended for the other projects where we ended up with GZA, but he had a conflict? Do you know Peter Dillon? Um, I will see him on Thursday afternoon. He's the brother water commissioner to me. Oh. <laughs> my town. All right. But I mean, he's, he's competent. I consider him extremely competent. He's helped me out a lot, a lot of times. All right. I, I just wanted to assure Nadine and the neighbors, we're not trying to cut corners here uh, in doing this. We want the, the best and the brightest. Um, they're, they're, they're a good firm too, John. There's no reason not to right. use them. No, I, I, I agree. I agree. But I, I never connected the name with Tetra. I didn't know he worked there. But I because he'd been recommended to us previously, 
um, I would be comfortable. I, I think I was comfortable with him on the last two projects. It's just that they he was either conflicted out or or too expensive or something. <laughs> I don't know. Sure. But I but I by reputation, I think he is among the best and the brightest. All right. Any other comments from commissioners? Uh, any other comments from abutters or um, members of the public? I, I do see one hand raised, but Gene, I, I presume that's still you, but I don't know if your hand is up again or if it's... No, it's been up, John. It, you never took it down as far as I know. Correct. Okay. Gene, are you there? I don't want to cut you off. I don't, I don't hear anything. So... Uh, my suggestion that we we move forward, uh, and I think the most I won't say fastest, but I'll say most efficient way, is to uh, ask for a, a consultant to be retained uh, at the expense of the applicant, but uh, as a consultant to the conservation commission. And I think the most efficient uh, way would be to go with uh, Peter Dillon as a hydrologist at Tetra Tech, then utilize him, and ask those two subject areas, they're not just two limited questions, but the subject area would be the mounding, whether or not it can impact Spafford Road and go into an adjoining uh, watershed, um, and then the uh, water budgeting analysis for the um, uh, for the vernal pool. Um, is there such a motion to do that? So moved. Thank you, Arthur. Is there a second? Second. Thanks, Tom. Um, any discussion? Hearing none. Uh, Arthur, how do you vote? Yes. Todd, how do you vote? Yes. Uh, Hans, how do you vote? Yes. Ingrid, how do you vote? Yes. Wendy, how do you vote? Yes. Yeah. Did, did I get Tom Palmer? Yes. All right, and I, I vote yes as well, John Cairn. That's unanimous, so we'll ask for the uh, uh, retention of uh, Peter Dillon. Uh, as a certified hydrologist who works for Tetra Tech to uh, be our consultant. Uh, the cost will be um, handed over to the applicant. Um, and I look forward to working with, with him if he accepts. Um, and I'd ask him to respond to those two main areas of questions that we have for the consultancy. Shouldn't we, John, shouldn't we narrow it down to he be hired just for those two things so it doesn't get real expensive for the applicant? Well, the only thing is the, 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 the response, I don't want to limit it to those two specific questions because those are the areas that we need consulting assistance on. Right. If they if they come back with a response and say, you know, on Tuesdays it could flow under uh, Highland Street and on Wednesdays it would not, we might have another question. I'm just making that up. I'm being facetious. <laughs> It may lead to other questions, so I don't want to limit ourselves. Hmm. It's not, I agree. It's not a free-for-all. I mean, these are the... the well, that's what areas. I'm trying to say. You know, where do you, it, if you, you want to get the answer to those two questions, let's get them. But, I mean, we don't want to have the guy go and go forever and run away a big expense for them, for stuff that, that we already got the answers to. No, I, I, I understand, but if, if if the arena of hydrology that we need assistance in, I, I don't want to limit, you know, if there's an obvious question to be asked. Uh, but I, I think we can keep good control of this. Okay. 
All right, if there are no other questions or comments, we'll continue this until uh, with the assent of the applicant until June 13th. And in the meantime, we'll we'll try to move expeditiously to uh, get Peter Dillon on board. And Steve, if you're, if you're gonna see him Thursday night, perhaps you could uh, you could start the process. Uh, sure, that's not a problem. Happy to do it. All right, great. Thank you very much. Um, we will update uh, other, other things in advance of the 13th as appropriate. Perfect. Thanks, Ned. Thanks all. I appreciate everything. Uh, this has continued until June 13th. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. All right. Thank you all. Uh, next on the agenda is uh, approval of minutes. Um, <laughs> I hate to kick this can down the road, but <laughs> what do you say we kick this till June? I, I don't. I don't have all of those completely reviewed. I've started them all, but I don't. If ever, if anybody else wants to weigh in now, then we can do it. Um, otherwise, I'd suggest uh, moving the approval of the minutes to the next meeting. Is that a good idea? <laughs> yes. Good, okay. All right, so now we go to additional business. Steve, anything? I'm not from me. All right, just quick updates. Uh, we did get the signs from DEP. Uh, I think DPW has agreed to put up five of the signs at uh, Milton Landing, Lower Mills. Uh, these are the warning signs for fish and particularly shellfish because of PCBs that have been uh, discovered by the EPA testing. Um, and we are sharing, uh, I think we've got a bunch of other signs and I know Arthur and, and uh, Richard Wells, uh, who is the select board subcommittee chair for the river, uh, are working together to try to find some other places to put the signs to warn the public. Uh, other updates, we had a meeting today with DEP on the site at 648 uh, to 652 Canton Avenue. We met with Tyler Ferrick, who is the DEP representative, who will be analyzing, uh, it's our denial of the permit, basically for lack of information. Uh, that was appealed to the DEP and uh, under the leadership of uh, Tyler Ferrick, uh, that will be reviewed over the coming weeks or months. Um, so today was a, a site visit uh, attended by the applicant, uh, attorney, two attorneys, and uh, Phil Cadero was there. Uh, the neighbors were there, represented by Dan Hill. I was there for the Conservation Commission. Uh, we just kind of walked the site, uh, said what the issues were, and we, we had a mounting analysis discussion today as to what was needed for additional data, you know, site-specific uh, conductivity tests, uh, monitoring wells, uh, et cetera, and, and which modeling uh, was to be used, whether it was the Hantouche method or the three-dimensional uh, mounting. So there was a full discussion about that. Uh, we took, I don't know, an hour and a half or so to walk the site. And uh, I think that appeal is up and running. So I'll keep you informed as to how we progress. Um, what else? Uh, on the lower guile field, um, issue. I did go to Kathy Bowen today and asked her to do some research for other towns. And there, there are a lot of them that are going through the same thing that, that we're going through right now. Um, actually, I talked to uh, Tyler Ferrick, not specifically about 
our case because he can't you know weigh in on that but i just asked him generically are there any other adjudicatory hearings going on and he said there is one that's in process right now so i'd ask kathy to do some research i did find one from 2021 uh, involving um arlington and i found uh, additional data on the um martha's vineyard dispute which interestingly enough is with the planning board it's not the conservation commission uh, but in any event, I will share what she sent to me this afternoon. I'll, I'll distribute that tomorrow to everybody. So you can see, you know, what, what other cities and towns are going through. Same issues. That's it for me for additional business. Mr. Chairman, we have um, the CPC application process for the next round. Um, right. That's due, what, mid-June? That's coming up fast. Mid-June 1. Monday, can you update us on that? Do you have anything on it? You're on mute, Wendy. Sorry about that. Um, yes, our we we are starting the um, the next round of applications, and it is very soon. Um, I believe it's actually beginning of June. Um, I was supposed to be at a committee meeting tonight, <laughs> but uh, was here instead. Um, but I can double check that for us right now. Actually, all right. One one of the ideas that uh, that uh, I discussed actually with Arthur and I think others is that, and, and I definitely discussed with uh, uh, Rob Lavash um, over the last six months or so, is the idea of the Conservation Commission sponsoring the request to purchase open space. So we, and I say we, that uh, a lot of people now, especially after the school building swap, looking for open land that we might be able to purchase. Uh, we have some limited funds uh, ourselves. Uh, the CPC committee, uh, CPA committee, sorry, um, may, may have additional funding or a desire to fund. And I did talk to somebody uh, that I'll explain to you. There's a, a piece of land that's referred to as the car property on Brush Hill Road. Well, it actually runs between Brush Hill Road and Blue Hill Avenue. And in total, it's about 10 acres. It's split though, and there's a three acre lot where a house is, and that is for sale. But in addition to that three plus acres, there's another six plus acres that is just open space, which is actually a different lot. So I, I talked to uh, Tabor Keeley, who's uh, in that area, and he's not, I don't think he's in a butter, but he's close by on Brush Hill Road. He may be in a butter. Uh, and I asked him if any of the neighbors were interested in purchasing a conservation restriction. I said, we, the Conservation Commission, might be able to get some money, but we, we, we probably couldn't get the money to buy the, all of it, but we could get enough money to get a conservation restriction on that uh, four, six acre process. I guess it's six acres. It's now open space. Um, and I just wanted to, to, to get your sense of whether or not that would be a good idea. I, and, and Wendy, I, we can ask for anything, but I'm just thinking to myself, we're not going to get enough money to buy that amount of acreage. But we might be able to get enough money, especially if the neighbors kick in and, and become part of a, a conservation restriction, that the sellers, which is the estate of uh, Miss Carr, who just passed away within the last year, we might be able to buy, put the money together from the uh, 
the, the CPA committee, uh, and especially if the neighbors were to contribute, to get a conservation restriction on it. Uh, it's an idea that I, I just wanted to know if, if the Conservation Commission would approve of such an effort. Like, Wendy, what do you think? Yeah, I'm... Um, you know, another option that we that we could consider if this was a um, a parcel of open open space that was very very um, significant is that the the community preservation committee can um, bond bond money over um, a period of several years. So that that we would be able to utilize more for open space than would be otherwise allocated in just one year. Um, That's great. So maybe we could yeah. put a proposal to get to get enough money to actually buy it. Yeah, I mean that um, would be the ultimate. That would be the the, the best plan. Is any of it wet, John? I don't know, Arthur. I think you've seen it, haven't you? Or yes, I've been up to that site. It's a uh, narrow, long, um, not densely wooded. It's, it's that, also slopes, that slopes down, doesn't it, Arthur? Toward the road. That's that long sliver, doesn't that slope from Brush Hill towards 138? Yes. That's uh, true. It's yeah. the southern, southern yeah. end of Brush Hill. Right, yeah. two, two pieces, two parcels there actually. Uh, one of which is has a house on it, and then the largest piece uh, is without any property on it, or without any buildings on it, I should say. That do you have recollection, Tom? Yeah, and it would be more valuable if you could walk through from Blue Hill Avenue to Brush Hill Road. If you were stopped by the house at Brush Hill Road, it would be kind of a cul-de-sac. At at Blue Hill Ave. I think there's a pretty high retaining wall. That's sort of the base of the slope. And then it just goes straight up the hill to the house on Brush Hill Road. And it's narrow, I think. And it doesn't have the appearance of not having been landscaped. In other words, I think the trees are mostly planted trees. I'm not sure. I haven't really walked it. Would you mind doing that, Tom? Because I, I, like I know to, public yeah. public access is is a factor for our consideration. Yeah, it would be much more valuable conservation land if people wanted to go there because it was fun to visit. That's it would be valuable for the neighborhood regardless, but it'd be more valuable if it was public access. Yeah, if it appealed to people beyond the immediate neighbors. That would be much more amenable to to the committee and most likely town meeting as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, maybe we could figure out if there's a way we could get an easement by the, the house part of it. Yeah. Um, or, or redivide the land. Because right now I think it's three and a half and six and a half acres. That's about right. If Are they trying trying to sell it as, as one piece? They are, yeah. But they probably won't want to subdivide it then. They may not, and that our backup plan was, because I talked to Tabor about this, and I said, I don't know if we could put enough money, because they're probably asking a fortune for a house with 10 acres. Um, but if we could 
the backup plan was the conservation restriction. We, you know, we could pay the car family a certain amount of money as, as part of the, the sale price. Um, I think the neighbors would be interested in preserving it and be, if they could kick in substantially, it would change the. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. It yeah. And that's, I said that to, to Tabor and he said he was going to talk to some of the neighbors and maybe we could get a, like a, a slice of land next to the house or, you know, on the Brush Hill road side of it to get public access so they could walk through. Just like it post ponds, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but without a pond. True. John, uh, uh, taking a look at the GIS map a while back, my recollection is there are two separate identifying fossils there. So it may not be one 10 acre site, but we can reconfirm that. No, I, I agree with you. There, are, I think there are two sites, but they're both owned by Mrs. Carr. I yes, thought. that's correct. Okay, right. And I just presume that the, uh, that the estate is selling both together. But I'm, I, I think I, the lawn. I think the lawn piece, John. You might not even be able to build on it. So I, I know. So you could buy it even cheaper if it's not buildable. It ought to be buildable though, because it's like all upland, just about. I don't mean it that way. I just mean setbacks and widths and stuff. I think it's two acre zoning and so much frontage up there. Uh huh. That's yeah. where they might have a problem getting a permit. So uh -huh. if it's, it's not buildable, then it could stay like it is and it's cheaper. Yeah, much. Right. John, another possibility is um, down in the Cortland Circle area. Um, a week ago this past weekend, a member of the ZBA asked me to. Uh, take a walk down there uh, with them. It starts with the um, um, New York, New Haven, Hartford Old Railroad bed, which apparently is owned by the Conservation Commission or the town. Uh, uh, it looks like uh, there's actually at the end eight acres that's on the marsh and uh, it goes out to the waterway. It's a fantastic um, hiking site um, and has a possibility of uh, putting in a kayak ramp. No kidding. That, that sounds pretty wow. good. Wow. What, uh, what road is that off? What did you say? You got Thistle or Cortland? It, yes, it, and it's in that area. Uh, to the right of Cortland, so it would be in the Thistle area. And there's a Mount Hope. We have to do a little bit of homework very quickly to find out exactly um, what the map looks like for those out eight acres. But there's a, a, a canal on there called the Mount Hope Canal. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you can see it from Granite Ave. If you're going toward the highway ramp, before mm -hmm. you hit Cortland Circle, on the right hand you can side, see a little break there. Yep. And if you were to follow it through, it eventually meets up with another path that comes off the end of Riverside Avenue, which goes along the marsh edge. Those converge near the Quincy line. And at the Quincy line is that radio station that the yes, Brazilian uh, company bought. And uh, all the marshland on the Milton side, I believe, is our land, conservation land. I think on that's the other side, it's called Zero Harriet Ave, and Quincy just bought it. 
because there was a development proposal there down at the bottom of President's Golf Course. So I think they paid a million dollars for that piece of the railroad corridor. So now there is an opportunity to create a Nipponza walkway between Quincy and Milton running from State Street office to Granite Street along this corridor. It may be that the cutout that Arthur mentions is a place in the marsh that was excavated long ago. So there's like a basin that comes in on the Milton side, not all the way to the upland edge, but a long way in. And there is a walkway from the Cortland Circle out to that basin. So that's an area that has a lot of possibility as for public access. Right, and it's wow. also uh, the remnant of uh, a rail spur uh, that went out beyond it. Um, yeah, they call that Black Rock. Yeah, it's a big stone embankment. That's it exactly all the way right. The river. You yeah. see it was built on both sides. Uh, yes, it, it starts in Milton and finishes in Quincy, I think. And at the end is obviously uh, the remnants of a dock by way in which the uh, granite is left in there and probably people went out there and then took the boat out to Boston or something of that nature. So we've got to get the lands, but in the lines of the property, but in any event, that, that could be a very attractive uh, recreational area, hiking area. Uh, there was a Swedish community that actually had a piece of land in there probably from the time in which the, uh, the Swedish population uh, worked in the quarries. They had Swedes, Irish, Italians, all working in the different quarries and somebody had a recreation space there. Well, that embankment is really a heavy stone construction and it goes right out to the water. It really, right. And the neighborhood people do use it now. Um, oh, there are people yeah. fishing in there. There are yeah. people walking from Quincy, all the way, because it goes in different directions. There are a couple of different. Yes. Oh, wow. But, but Arthur, are you talking about buying this land or is this already town land that we could simply ap apply for our development money? When I say development, I'm talking about a Applying for a development. Or canoe ramp. Determining exactly what the bounds are and if it's proximate to mm -hmm. uh, the water, which we think it is, then asking for a site development for a kayaking and other recreational boating. Not non, it would probably be non-motorized boating. Sure. It is kayaks. Do you really want to carry your kayak all the way out there? Well, people have portable <laughs> kayaks out. <laughs> you see the inflatable portable kayaks? <laughs> That's right. That's why God invented dollies. <laughs> Either that or get some young kids to carry it. They just wheel them right out. You could do that from the end of Riverside Avenue now, maybe. Because there's just an aluminum gate there to go around. Yeah. Okay, so what's, what's the next step so we can advance this? Because we're we're running out of time for the CPA. Right. Um, I'll, I'll work. I'll call, contact the ZBA member. I wanted to run it by you and see if the commissioner rather and see if it seemed attractive and get back to uh, them and if uh, is a right. consensus that it's worth exploring we'll, right. we'll go on a better way and, and I, i'll call Tabor back to see if he talked to any of the the neighbors there that would might be willing to contribute to you know joining the conservation commission and 
funding uh, a purchase of the open space, um, or at the very least, purchasing a conservation restriction. Tom, would you mind just you know walking there or taking a yeah, look? Yeah, I'll it? tell you. Look, you know, Tabor sent me some pictures. Included an old well that's on the property. So apparently there were cattle there one time. Yeah, I'll take a look for sure. I I think it's it would be nice if it was not developed. Um, All right, that that's great. And, and we won't wait for the next meeting to uh, you know coalesce on the, on this because we've got to get that application. The first one's pretty preliminary. It's it's not a right. detailed application, but it's just what eligibility. Uh, Wendy. Uh, I'll try it is, and it's, take a, a it's it's basically a a, a one page application, um, really just with like a half a page of narration of what the general intent is, and um, and that's due that's due in two weeks, June first. I double checked the date. Okay. All right. Well, I've, I'm leaving for travel on the 26th, and I won't come back until the third third of, of uh, June. So I'm going to have to move really quickly on this. Uh, I'll try to get out there this weekend. Perfect. All right, good. Great. Thank you. Now, awesome. so we've got nothing else, I don't think, unless anybody speaks up. Uh, so how about a motion to adjourn? Yes. Motion to adjourn. Yeah. Wendy, you seconded. Aye. Thanks. All in favor? Aye. Aye. We're done. Good night, Thank everyone. You. Thank Aye. you. Good night. Good night Morning, everybody. everyone. Thank <laughs> you.